This is Skywave Audio Theater. I'm your host, Norman Gilliland. We'll have command performance tonight, some of Hollywood's biggest stars entertaining the troops abroad in 1942. We'll go down to steamy Havana for a bold venture episode starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Destination Freedom tonight with a story called The Heart of George Cotton. We'll present an episode in the life of a pioneering African-American surgeon, heart surgeon. We'll also have a story from The Whistler, another twisted tale for you to follow. And science fiction from Ray Bradbury comes to us via Dimension X and the Velt. Westerns in the 1950s delved more into psychology of both sides of an issue. And none did more to further the cause than Fort Laramie. Largely thanks to author Kathleen Height, who wrote many of the scripts and was doggedly meticulous in her research and script writing, featuring often strong female characters, but also looking at the two sides of an issue, and very much is the case tonight. In a story called The Massacre, it stars, of course, Raymond Burr as Captain Lee Quince in a story of a promise that could not be kept. Our broadcast comes from August 5th, 1956. Captain Lee Quince, specially transcribed tales of the dark and tragic ground of the wild frontier, the saga of fighting men who rode the rim of empire, and the dramatic story of Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. White Dogs camp, sir? It's Shoshone. That'd make it White Dogs, unless there's more of a Shoshone migration than we know about. You can tell from here it's Shoshone? Look at their huts down there, Mr. Seibert. It's made of grass and brush woven together, not skins like the Sioux and Cheyenne. Doesn't look like there are any lodge poles. There aren't. They don't have any roofs, any lodge poles, just a half circle of woven grass. Harrison? Yes, sir? Bring on the white flag, Harrison. You and I are riding in. Yes, sir. You'll keep the patrol up here, Mr. Seibertz. Keep your eye on Harrison's flag. As long as he flies it, there's no trouble. Yes, sir. Uh, white Dog will understand that you've just come to powwow with him. Going in this way, he'll understand. Ready, Harrison? Yes, sir. Let's go. Good luck, sir. Thank you, Mr. Seibertz. Watch it down through here, Harrison. I'm watching Major said a couple of hundred Shoshone. Looks smaller than that to me, Harrison. I'll eat everyone over a hundred with fine, Captain. 
I don't have your appetite, but a hundred's nearer right. Ah, they're beginning to notice us. I'll lose all feeling in my arm if I hold this flag any higher. Sooner the feeling than the arm, Harrison. Yes, sir. Funny they wouldn't have no lookouts posted. Well, either they're not expecting any trouble or they don't care. You, lead me to White Dog? White Dog in council. In his hut? Why White Army come? We come in peace. To powwow with White Dog. Your flags say that. Will you lead me to your chief? He talk with Ninambia. I not talk to White Dog when he talk with Ninambia. Just show me where he is. You know Shoshone legend? Yes, I know. There. In small canyon out by stream. Follow it. You find White Dog. You going up into that canyon, Captain Quince? Yeah, you stay here and keep that flag in plain sight. Feel it in your arm or not? Yes, sir. You shouldn't have any trouble, unless it bothers you to be outnumbered by squaws and kids. Longs are not mine. They don't fret me, Captain. Who's White Dog talking to? Ninambia. Little people. The Shoshone believe they live in mountain canyons. Their medicine men counsel with them. They can see them? They believe they can. You see any of them, you tell me, Captain? I see any. Might be something I'd want to keep to myself. Stand fast, Harrison. Yes, sir. Counsel too, Captain? I need your counsel, White Dog. Sit, my son. You ride from Fort Laramie today? Yesterday. You and your people must be tired, as my people are tired. Your journey has been longer than ours, White Dog, and harder. A journey is hard when a heart is heavy, Captain. We go to our home. This lightens our load. You are moving your people without permission, White Dog. Shoshone cannot live in country meant for you, Topi, Apache, Paiute. We are not root eaters. We know that. I think my people made a mistake putting Shoshone so far to the south in desert country. Yeah. But you have left the reservation, White Dog. You come to take us back? No. Now we have come in peace. And you find us in peace, Captain. You have told me your people are tired, White Dog. Tired people, hungry people, sometimes break the peace. Then you come to make us less tired? To feed us? We have come to find out your needs and to arrange for your safe passage to your home in the Wind River Mountains. Good. Ninambia told me of your coming. It was too much to believe. There is no trick. You have always believed me before, White Dog. You, yes. 
How long have you made your camp here? Two suns have risen since my people put their hut by the stream. Is it a good camp? You have water. Is the hunting good? My braves find game. Not buffalo, on which my people grow strong. They find bear, antelope, deer. In our camp, Captain, are many squaw, many papoose. And not many braves. Our number was more when we left Apache Reservation. But our journey was hot, dry. Now our burial ground is the length of these great mountains. You have traveled too fast, White Dog. Two enemies have pursued us. A blazing sun. And the fear that when the White Army came, it would not come in peace. When your people reach the valleys of the Wind River, when they are home, they will continue to live in peace? You have my word, my son. And I give you mine. We will grant your safe passage to your home. You will travel with us. We will camp with you tonight. Tomorrow we will journey together to Fort Lyon. There will be orders waiting for us there. Turning in, Captain? Mm. It's a beautiful night, Mr. Seibitz. You write about nights like this in your journal? (laughs) How can you put the Rocky Mountains into a journal, sir? (laughs) It's kind of hard even to set them good in your mind and believe them. I never see him. I I don't feel small, trifling. The sky that clear and the stars so bright. I'm sure it must all have a meaning. There's meaning in tonight, all right. Down there by the stream in White Dog's camp, the old man's telling his people that we've come to take them home. That the Ninambia told them of our coming. There's peace in their hearts tonight, Mr. Seibertz. That has meaning. I think it does. I think the men feel it too, sir. White men, red men, bedding down into the same stars, nobody reaching for a rifle, nobody stealing up with an arrow. Yeah, that's the way it ought to be. And every time it isn't, I get blazing mad inside. Are you a religious man, Captain? I got... I have things I believe, Mr. Seibertz. This, tonight. Challenge of the mountains, peace of the stars, men living under them without fear. Guess that's pretty close to what I believe in. It's a lot to believe, sir. (laughs) I believe something else, Mr. Seibertz. Yes, sir? I've been working my jaw like an old woman. Must have used up a couple of years' words for me. (laughs) I was thinking I'll be able to put some of this night into my journal after all. Night, Mr. Sarbitt. Night, sir. That's just a coyote. Just a coyote. You act like it meant something, Captain. Not to me. But to White Dog and the Shoshone, the coyote is a trickster. 
You can count on it, Mr. Seibert. It'll mean something to the Shoshone. We made counsel through the night, my son. My people will not follow white soldier. I heard the coyote, white dog. My people heard, and I heard. In the legend of the Shoshone, it was Coyote the trickster who changed the color of our skin. Shoshone's skin once was white, Captain. You've told me. In the story of creation, when the creator first breathed life into tufts of grass, the people called Shoshone were born with skin white as snow. Until one day, Coyote the trickster gave fruit to the white Shoshone woman. And since that day, the color of your skin has been brown. And since that day, Captain, Shoshone has known fear of Coyote the trickster and men whose skin is white. Yesterday, white dog, we spoke words of peace, you and I. Mm. We spoke of believing each other. Yesterday, Coyote was silent. But the Ninambia, you said they told you of our coming. You doubt the prophecy of the Ninambia? My son, you find me here. I seek their counsel. Yesterday, they told of white leaders' friendship. Yesterday, you came in peace. Last night, Coyote warned. Today, Ninambia are silent. White dog. White dog, you're a long way from home. I have orders to see you safely to your Wind River hunting grounds. I have orders, too, from my people. We camped together last night. If we had come to harm you, we could have made quick work. Last night, Coyote warned. My people listen. You'd better counsel again with your people, White Dog. In one hour, we're moving on to Fort Lyon. All of us. My son. You will take us by force? I don't want to. Let us move our own way. Our belief is not your belief. And yet, we both believe in peace. You will keep peace if you go. Leave us alone. My people will look on that as a mark of trust. My son, believe me. A sign that we have your respect. This will bring much goodwill, much peace. I'll... I'll do this much, white dog. My patrol and I will report to Fort Lyon as ordered... I will powwow there with white chiefs. Tell them your wishes. If we do not return in two suns, you will know you are free to move in your own way. Uh, thank you, my son. You'll need some sign that says you travel with the army's permission. I will leave you with two flags, a white flag and an American flag. When you march, see your braves hold them high. When you make camp, Fly them in full view above your huts. We will accept the flags. A totem of trust between men. You will not be sorry, my son. I hope neither of us will have cause to be sorry, White Dog. 
seem worried, Captain. Is it White Dog or the Major's orders to return to Fort Laramie? I'm thinking, Mr. Seibertz. I always look worried when I think. You know, sir, I, I thought the commander at Fort Lyon was very cooperative. He seemed to agree with everything you told him about White Dog. I'm not worried about him or White Dog or Major Daggett, but it's a long way to Wind River from here. White Dog and his people are a long way from home. You figure him to be about two days behind us, sir? Yeah, about that. Yeah, that'll be Harrison riding in, Captain. Must have come on to something. Must have. Patrol, halt! Captain Quint, sir. Now, what is it, Harrison? Up ahead, sir, in the basin. Cavalry. Must be a full company of them. They camped? Well, more like they've just stopped for a while. No real camps or no pickets out. Wonder what company it is, sir. Well, it's not from Fort Laramie or Fort Lyon. We'd know about them. Might be someone from Kansas or Nebraska. I'll ride on ahead with Harrison for a check. Move the patrol up after us. Right, sir. Let's go, Harrison. Yes, sir. Still talking, Captain. Talking, Harrison? Like he was when I come on him. The tall one. And the rest listening. Must have a lot on his mind. Uh, we'll leave our horses here. Walk on in. Yes, sir. Can you hear the voice of God Almighty telling you, as he tells me, this is the glory road? God knows it is, brother. I call you brothers. You are my brothers. Amen. And we travel this road together. Amen. Not as a company of cavalry. Not as a commanding officer and trooper. But as brothers. Amen. Soldiers in the army of God Almighty. Oh, God Almighty. With just one supreme commander. Amen. So be it, brothers. So be it. And in the battles that are to come, we shall hear the voice together, you and I. We shall follow his orders to the death. And whosoever shall come between us and the voice shall perish. Well, without end. Amen. Amen. Amen, brothers. Captain, is he a parson, that major? Might be, Harrison. Or maybe it's just like you said. He's got a lot on his mind. You, Captain, do you pray? I might. Then pray now, brother. For the salvation of your soul and for those of your brothers. You in command here, Major? God is in command here, brother. I'm Captain Quince, B Company out of Fort Laramie. My respects, Major. Major Petrie, A Company, Fort Pier. You're a long way from Dakota country, sir. I hope you're not questioning my right to be here, Captain. I'm not questioning anything, but I'm interested in your being here. I take it you're not going on to Fort Lyon. We shall go where our mission takes us. At Fort Lyon, they think my patrol is the only cavalry between there and Fort Laramie. You guard your territory jealously, Captain. A base emotion, jealousy. As base as suspicion. I shall pray for your deliverance. I don't want you praying for me, Major. Ignorance is sin, brother. Ignorant, jealous, that may be. But suspicious I am. Of any man who talks about God and wears half a dozen scalps hanging from his belt. 
I make a practice of reporting men who have no respect for rank, Captain. My commanding officer is Major Daggett at Fort Laramie. I'd appreciate your reporting this incident, Major Petrie, including the six scalps. I'll welcome you in Dakota Territory any time, Captain. I'd say you have a lot to learn. I was thinking the same about you, Major. We're at peace with the Indians in this part of the West. Are you? There's a band of Shoshone a couple days behind us. They have the army's leave to move to their home along the Wind River. Our paths may not cross at all. If they do, you'll find them flying two flags, a white one and the American flag. We've told them the flags will guarantee their protection. We look differently on the American flag in Dakota Territory, Captain. That's so, Major? Out here, it means liberty and justice for everyone. Come on, Harrison. What kind of man is that, Captain? The kind of man that scalps Indian women, Harrison. we can get out of Fort Pierre, Captain. Colonel says Major Petrie's on a reconnaissance mission. Scalping Indian women's called reconnaissance nowadays, Major? Uh, you want to read the telegram for yourself, Lee? I don't need to. I know what I saw. I know how you feel, Lee. We've got troubles enough without the Army fighting itself. Major, if you'd have seen his men, wild-eyed, frenzied, he was whipping them with his words. What words they were? Oh. Every officer has his way of stirring up his men. Stirring them up for what? That's all I want to know. From the North Platte as far south as the Cimarron, the Indians are at peace. Well, I don't know what his aim was. When you telegraphed Fort Pierre, did you, did you ask the colonel if Major Petrie's a minister? The answer's there, Captain. He's a self-ordained minister. Six scalps, Major. All right, all right. What do you want me to do? I had to call you back here. Captain Matheson's got two companies detained in the Black Hills. We've got a garrison to secure, Captain. White Dog's two days late. If he was moving at all, he'd have been through here two days ago. Maybe they're traveling a different route. To get to Wind River? I don't know, Lee. I don't know, except I can't spare a patrol right now. You can spare me. For what? What would you do? Start back, look for White Dog. Not alone, Lee. All right, give me Harrison, then. Suppose you find White Dog and his people. They're not likely to feel any different. You offered them the protection of a patrol before. They're not going to fear two men. Maybe they're not. You, uh, you feel responsible for them, don't you? I gave them the flags, Major. And we don't know that they had need for any other protection. They're two days late. All right, Lee. You and Harrison. Thank you, Major. I'm not finished. When you find White Dog, I want you to make this clear to him. When he's off the reservation, he's entitled to Army protection. And by heaven, next time he'll accept an Army patrol, whether a coyote howls or not. I'll tell him, sir. I want to be just, Lee. I want to treat Indians fairly, civilly. But when their superstitions get in the way, I lose patience with them. I feel the same way, Major. I'm glad to hear that. About an Indian superstition and a white man's fanaticism. Blind spots don't have a color, Major.
wouldn't mind telling you, Captain. Gave me a turn at first. Seeing them come straggling up and make the camp right there on our creek. They didn't bother you? No, no bother at all. Excepting just that they was there and they was Indians. It don't make a man feel real comfortable. My woman now, she just let out one long war whoop made for the fruit cellar. <laughs> like never got her out of there. She feeling better about it now? Yeah, fine. Yeah, we got so we just sat by and watched them. They was cooking, cleaning their young in the creek. Never made a move toward us, nor us toward them. Well, now, I, I got to be honest about one thing. What's that? I said we just sat by and watched. That ain't the whole truth. <laughs> My woman turned her head more than one time. Them braves don't wear much more than they're born with, do they? <laughs> Not much, mister. Yeah. Well, sir, yeah, the sight to end them all for me was when they first come in. Now, right away, they run up them flags as high as they could. I tell you, Captain, that flag looks mighty good, no matter who's flying it. You say they left here day before yesterday? Well, now, let's see. Yes, sir, I'm sure of it. Heading north? North along the creek. Well, thanks very much, mister. We must have passed their camp during the night, Harrison. Don't seem like we could have, Captain. Well, it doesn't. Is it just two of you after them this time? This time, mister? Yes. Now, yesterday, there was lots more troopers. And the major who talked to me, uh, I think he said it was a major. Well, anyways, he asked the same kind of questions. Only... Only what? Only when I told him about the Indians... He didn't smile the way you did, uh, kind-like. This major, he, he didn't smile at all. Let's go, Harrison. What kind of a lunatic are you? You're still in need of prayer, brother. You're rotten, foul, evil. You came upon the Shoshone camp? I never saw such a slaughter. Old men, old women, babies. Why? Why? My report will say that we were attacked, Captain. How many men did you lose, oh, Major? We were very lucky. And all the attackers were killed. <laughs> Do you like it, Major, killing women and children? <laughs> You'll get court-martialed for this. An investigating party should be at Owl Creek by now. We'll see who gets the court-martial. For killing Indians? They'll find the flags waving high over a hundred cut-up bodies. They'll find the rifles that were never fired. And there's no mistake in the fresh scalps around here. You call yourself a white man? Indian lover? Well... I've no time for your kind. Women and children, yes. Nits make lice. An Indian that never grows up is a good Indian. Because, because he's a dead Indian. And a dead squaw can't bear any more papooses. Not a solitary one. The killing's just begun. The Indians you haven't killed will massacre innocent whites because of you. 
savages answering savages. But your killing's the worst kind. Killing in the name of God. Fort Laramie is produced and directed by Norman MacDonald and stars Raymond Burr as Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. The script was specially written for Fort Laramie by Kathleen Height, with sound patterns by Bill James and Tom Henley. Musical supervision by Amerigo Marino. Featured in the cast were John Daner, Lawrence Dobkin, Sam Edwards, Lou Krugman, and Tim Graham. Jack Moyles is Major Daggett, and Harry Bartell is Lieutenant Seibert's. Company, tension. Dismiss. Next week, another transcribed story of the Northwest Frontier and the troopers who fought under Lee Quince, Captain of Cavalry. You there, don't let that newspaper blow into the street. It costs us millions of dollars each year to hire people who will go around picking up after you. That us includes you, for trash collecting and rubbish disposal come right out of your pockets in taxes. CBS Radio urges you to help keep our streets and countryside neat and clean and less expensive to maintain. Fort Laramie with a story called The Massacre from August 5th, 1956, making the point that savages come in all colors, as do decent people. And Captain Quince's last line sums up part of the story, too. Your killin' is the worst kind, killin' in the name of God. Raymond Burr, the Canadian-American performer, was offered the part of Perry Mason on television, about two-thirds of the way through the run of Fort Laramie. And uh, the other person who actually had been Captain Quince in the audition, John Daner, would have been a logical substitute to pick up the series, but he had already been offered the part of Frontier Gentleman. 
for radio. Command performance, as you'll hear, was intended to entertain the troops till it's over over there, and it did so with a lot of Hollywood stars packed into its half-hour episodes. A lot of variety, and tonight, two sides of the issue of uh, him and her, you might say. Walter Pidgeon, who is usually a serious actor in a couple of comic sketches with a couple of major stars. And you'll hear Johnny Weissmuller, famous as Tarzan, giving the Tarzan yell, I think recorded by the sound of it, but see what you think. Mary Martin hitting some high notes in Ta-ra-ra-boom-dee. You'll get to hear that. And a lot of other things going on tonight. In command performance, oh, don't forget the tuba tiger rag, as it's sometimes called, but its original form, the tiger rag, featuring the Mills Brothers, in this broadcast from August 11th, 1942. USA, the greatest entertainers in America, as requested by you, the fighting men of the United States Armed Forces throughout the world. Command performance presented this week and every week till it's over, over there. Calling the khaki and the navy blue, the merchant marine and the coast guard too. And listen, Marines, that goes for you, for it's command performance time in the USA. So get on the beam there, mister, while the stars of radio stage and screen shortwave the answers to those thousands of swell letters you're shooting in. And now meet the commanding officer of command performance tonight. It's front and center for your master of ceremonies, Walter Pigeon. Thank you, Don Wilson, and hello, fellows. In Hollywood, we often go out on location for the studio to shoot a picture, but you're out on location for Uncle Sam shooting the works. And here in Hollywood, where the mystery film was born, the biggest mystery today is, where do you fellows find the time to write those swell letters to command performance? But we're not going to try to solve that mystery. We're just going out to answer your letters. Letters from the gang at APO 867 that say... Give us the Mills Brothers. And letters from an RAF camp somewhere in England that say, How's about the Mills Brothers? The answer to all that mail is, Hold that tiger and the Mills Brothers. Hold the tiger, 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 hold the tiger. 
Thanks to Leo Forbstein and the Warner Brothers Studio Orchestra, appearing through the courtesy of Local 47. Incidentally, to D.S. of Warner's over in Teddington, Middlesex, thanks and have patience. And now, fellows, for old 69, somewhere in the islands, for three Americans who rode on June 22nd, not far from London, for Johnny, Punchy, and Doug at CAPO number three, and for Sergeant DMD and that fighting number we can't mention at APO 867. We bring you a travel lecture by that fluttery madcap, that screwball mistress of zany chit-chat, Miss Vera Vey. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much for that charming introduction. Uh, oh, Oh, my, what a handsome man. <laughs> Remind me to take you home with me tonight, Mr. Sparrow. <laughs> Her name is Pigeon. Pigeon? Well, Sparrow Pigeon. <laughs> this is one case, brother, where I'd be glad to get the bird. <laughs> I haven't had so much fun since the time I spent a weekend in the Tunnel of Love. <laughs> By the way, Mr. Pigeon, are you married? No, I'm not, Miss Vague. Oh, well, neither am I. Isn't that a coincidence? <laughs> I say, isn't that a coincidence? Uh, yes, it is. <laughs> well, you see, when two people who aren't married are thrown together like this, it often leads to something. Uh, of course, I won't press you. Beg <laughs> pardon? Yeah, but I'd like to. <laughs> Would you like to go to the Hollywood Bowl with me this evening about 11.30? But at 11... <laughs> 11.30? Why, Miss Vague, at 11.30, there's nobody there. Uh, you got the point quickly. <laughs> uh, well, we'll see about that later. Uh, right now, don't you think it's time to get on with your lecture on travel? My lecture? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yes, that. Uh, my lecture. Uh, well, tonight, I thought I'd discuss the... Uh, the educational advantages of travel. Mm -hmm. It's a fascinating subject, don't you think so? Oh, yes. So wanderlusting. Uh, <laughs> just the word I would have used. Oh, it's a small world, isn't it? Now, uh, let's 
plunge right into our subject here, shall we? Uh, you know, Mr. Pigeon, I'm quite a traveler myself. A few years ago, I took a boat trip to England. Lovely trip and a perfectly wonderful boat. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did you travel first class or tourist? Oh, first class, of course. On the day we sailed, the captain came up to me and said, Miss Vague, you can have the free run of the boat with one restriction. We'd rather you didn't mingle with the cattle. <laughs> uh, a very excellent precaution, I think. Uh, yes, I thought so, too. But uh, uh, to continue with my lecture, you know, I spent a good many months in England, mm. and it's a very interesting and cultural spot. Uh, uh, now, as we now all know, England is an island. Uh, really? Huh? Uh, that is, it's... Uh, well, it's, it's uh, full of inhabitants. <laughs> uh, that, that is quite a number of people live there. But where am I? Uh, as I remember it, uh, you were discussing the English. The English? Yeah. Oh, yes. That's right. Uh, mm. Thank you. Uh, but I, I was going to say that I feel that England and America have a great deal in common, Mr. Pigeon. Especially musically. Musically? Yes. I think that's due to the alliance of the Anglo-Saxophone people. <laughs> Undoubtedly. Yes. Now, um, as you know, England is full of interesting edifices, colleges, churches, art galleries, and so forth. I remember while there, I went to see the, uh, uh, where we saw some beautiful old, uh... A big pardon? It's, it's very foggy in England, you know. We didn't even see a thing. <laughs> did you see the Thames? The Thames? Oh, yes, certainly I did. I sat there watching it for hours on end. Uh, for hours on end. <laughs> You've been over there, haven't you, Mr. Pigeon? Oh, yes, I have many friends in England. In fact, uh, I got a letter from there this morning. Oh, you did? Mm -hmm. well, what did it say? Why? What do you want to know for? What do I want to know for? You're the most inquisitive person. <laughs> I'm inquisitive? No, Miss Fagg. This letter was from a young lady in England. Oh. She wrote for financial advice. It seems she just lost 2,000 pounds. My goodness, she was heavy, wasn't she? <laughs> oh, I, I see what you mean, yes. Uh, uh, Miss Vague, you don't seem to know very much about England. Suppose you just skip the subject and tell us something about some other country you visited, if you don't mind my suggestion. Oh, certainly not. I value your suggestions. No one in the world could have a higher opinion of you than I do, Mr. Pitcher. Why, thank you. Uh, I don't think you're so hot. <laughs> Guess that'll bring you down a keg. Now, uh... <laughs> Mr. Pigeon, let's not quarrel anymore. I didn't mean it. I think you're a charming person. Let's mm. be friends, shall we? I wish I had a pipe of peace. Mm, I wish I had a piece of pipe. <laughs> well, bless your heart. The, um... <laughs> Can you tell us uh, something interesting about Switzerland? Or was it too foggy there, too? Oh, Switzerland, yes. Yes, I went there, but I didn't care much about it. It's nothing, you know, but a lot of mountains. Well, don't tell me you didn't like the Alps. The Alps? Oh, indeed I did. They were the nicest people I met on the whole trip. <laughs> of, of course, uh, while in Egypt, you went up the Nile, didn't you? Oh, yes, yes, all the way up. And isn't it a lovely view from the top? Huh? <laughs> uh, yeah. You know, Miss Fagg, I went to Egypt myself a few years ago and visited the pyramids. Oh, that's so. Yes. You know, they were literally covered with hieroglyphics. <laughs> Weren't you afraid they'd hop on you? Oh, my goodness. So I'm, oh, 
I see what you mean, yes. Uh, but uh, truly, I was very, very much impressed with the Sphinx. It's a beautiful piece of architecture. I just sat right down there and wrote a lovely poem about it. If I do say so myself, and I wondered if you'd care to hear it tonight, Mr. Well, uh, it's, it's very kind of you, Miss Vague, but oh, uh, I'm afraid I... Oh, thank you very much. I knew you'd love it. Here it is. I'll read it. <laughs> no one knows just what she thinks. Oh, solemn image of the Sphinx. Tis to Egypt we must give our thanks for that early wonder named the Sphinx. <laughs> With myrrh and incense, burning punks, we sit before the lovely punks. It's, it's a little hard, but you see what I mean. Thank you, Mr. Thank you, Vera Vague. And now, men, here's a letter from one of Uncle Sam's businessmen in khaki. The business, bombing. His name is Ralph, and Ralph gets his mail at APO 937. And the man who's going to read his letter of July the 5th is none other than Johnny Weissmuller. Come on out here, Johnny. Thanks, Walter Pigeon. And may I see the letter? Here it is, Johnny. Thanks. Let's see. Dear Command Performance, my buddies and I get a tremendous kick out of our big show. But for a long time, I've been anxious to hear one special voice, the famous jungle call of Tarzan. Hey, that's me. <laughs> so, if you will do me this one favor, I will appreciate it very much. Signed, Ralph. Well, I'll be... Well, Tarzan, what are you going to do about it? Do? Listen, brother, just let me back off so I won't blast the mic. Tarzan's going to call his buddy, a bombardier with Uncle Sam. Thank you, Johnny Weissmuller. And now, for a former Portland woman living in Southampton, whose six-foot-seven-inch son is somewhere in the Middle East, for a certain army shoemaker at St. John's, for Private Ray and the Bunker Buds in Hawaii, for the army nurses and Private ALG at APO 922, and for all of you who have put in orders for another helping of America's great singing sensation. Command Performance gives you a tune you all know, and... The Merry Max. On your old gray bonnet with the blue ribbons on it, and we'll hitch all Dobbin to the shed. Through the fields of clover, we will ride to Dover on our golden wedding day. Put on your old gray bonnet with the blue ribbons on it, and we'll hitch all Dobbin. Through the fields of clover, we will ride to Dover on our golden wedding day. Put on your 
We're gonna ride to Dover on our golden wedding day. Put on your old gray bonnet with the blue ribbons on it, and we'll hitch old Dobbin to the shady ride. Through the fields of Palmer, we will ride on Dover on a golden wedding day. Put on your old gray bonnet with the blue ribbons on it. And we'll hitch old Dobbin to the shade, old Dobbin to the shade. Through the fields of clover, we will ride on it over on our golden wedding day. Through the fields of clover, we will ride to Dover on our golden wedding day. Very much. Well, fellows, there's a very special girlfriend of yours on the command performance tonight, and before she does her big song, we'd like her to shortwave a few words to you. Miss Mary Martin. Thank you, Walter Pigeon. And hello, fellas. Greetings to Corporal M.E.H. at 8 P.O. 955. And man, don't get off the beat this time. Hello, Preventure. How are things somewhere in Hawaii? And say, Saki, the best to you and the gang at Guantanamo Bay. Hello to Jack at 8 PO 941. And Jackie, consider that complaint practically taken care of. Hello to Fort Randolph. Love to you fellas in Africa and India. My best to New Caledonia. 73s to a hut full of Jersey Irishmen in Australia. And to all of you, thanks for those wonderful letters. And here's a little number for you. Tarara Boomdier with the Max Tear Chorus. A sweet tuxedo girl you see, queen of all society. Fond of fun as fond can be when it's on the strict QT. I'm not too young, I'm not too old, not too timid, not too bold, just the kind you'd like to hold, just the kind for fun, I'm told. Ta-ra-ra-boom-dee-ay, 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 ta-ra-ra-boom-dee-ay. I've been pretty pally with all the boys from Artie Shaw to Valley. Valley. I have torn a herring with Mr. Whiteman and with Mr. Weddy. Dr. Black of NBC could swing a symphony for me. Not too good. Ah, 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 boom, the red, 
Thank you, my pretty Mary Martin, and thanks to the Maxter Chorus. And now, men, in answer to your letters all the way from the Golden West to the Far East and from the Arctic to the Equator, Command Performance presents one of Hollywood's leading ladies who is also Hollywood's leading lady in the sale of war bonds. By worldwide command of the AEF, lovely Marlena Dietrich. Yes, sir, fellows. In the worldwide spotlight of command performance, it's lovely Marlena Dietrich. Marlena Dietrich and Walter Pigeon in an intimate drama of love and life in a Hollywood drive-in. The scene? Anyone of Hollywood's streamlined drive-in restaurants. The characters, a beautiful waitress and a guy in a car. The waitress, Marlena Dietrich. The guy, Walter Pigeon. Lights! Action! Camera! Hey, sister, how about a little service? Good evening, sir. Will you step inside or eat in the car? Oh, I'll eat in the... <whistles> hey, where did you come from? I beg your pardon? You're out of this world. You're beautiful. Gorgeous. Say, I can get you in pictures. How interesting. Have you tried our applesauce? <laughs> now, look, I'm a busy girl. Are you going inside or are you going to eat in the car? I'll eat in the car. Breadcrumbs are good for the upholstery. Okay, mister. One order of breadcrumbs for the upholstery. <laughs> Anything else? Yeah. How about a date tonight? No soap. We'd be sensational together. What makes you think so? With your sugar and my tires, how can we miss? <laughs> now, look, this is a restaurant, not a casting office. What do you want to eat? What do you suggest? I suggest roast beef and gravy. But from the looks of your tie... I see you've already had some. <laughs> Pretty wise, aren't you? Remind me not to leave you a tip. You don't look like the kind of a guy who has to be reminded. <laughs> look, lady, I didn't come here to be insulted. No? No. If I wanted to be insulted, I could have stayed home and read my fan mail. <laughs> very funny, very funny. Now, what are you going to have? Let's see. Oh, uh, I'll have number three, the Tenderloin All uh, Salisbury Ox Champagnons. <laughs> the Tenderloin All Salisbury Au Champignons? Uh, yeah. Okay. One hamburger. <laughs> With an onion. 
Hang a rose on it. <laughs> Say, you're kind of cute. Seriously, gorgeous. Haven't you ever thought of going into the movies? Yes. As a matter of fact, I'm going tomorrow night. Oh, that's not what I mean. Hasn't, one ever, hasn't anyone ever told you that you have Anne Sheridan's eyes? Madeline Cowell's hair, Hattie Lamar's figure, Dietrich's legs. And what'll you have for dessert? <laughs> With all that staring me in the face, sister, who wants dessert? Sorry, Mr. Wolf. Red Riding Hood isn't interested. You've got me all wrong, baby. I'm with Epic Pictures. I'm a talent scout. What a coincidence. My brother's a boy scout. <laughs> then do your good deed and tell me your name. Marie. I'm Steve Merrick. <laughs> Bet you thought I was going to tell you I was Daryl Zanuck, huh? Oh, no. That's Daryl Zanuck over there on that broken-down jalopy. You don't say. Well, maybe I don't, but he does. And that fellow eating pickles on the Chevy, he told me he's Sam Goldwyn. Oh. Who are those two guys on the bicycle, the Warner Brothers? <laughs> now, look, baby. I'm serious. I can guarantee you a part in pictures. Not interested. Then what did you come to Hollywood for? To be a waitress. What? I came here to be a waitress, not a movie star. I can die now. I've seen everything. There's nothing wrong with being a waitress. People think waitresses just chew gum and sigh over Walter Pidgeon in the movies. <laughs> they are not all like that. No, not all of them chew gum. <laughs> I said not all of them chew gum. <laughs> Look, it's a living and I like it. But what a life, dishing out hamburgers and ham sandwiches all day. It must get so you can't look a piece of ham in the face. Yes, but in your case, I'll make an exception. <laughs> Lady, do you realize what I'm offering you? A picture job, the greatest career in the world. If it's so great, how come you're not in pictures? Well, uh, as a matter of fact, I used to be, uh, uh, sort of. I was a photographer's model when I was a baby. You used to pose for pictures when you were a baby? Sure. I used to pose for those uh, talcum powder ads, you know. Why did you give it up? Well, uh... <laughs> I, uh, wanted to get my face in the picture, too. I can't imagine why. Well, if you could have seen the pictures, you could imagine why. Now, what do you want with a hamburger? Lady, I'm on the level. I'm offering you a job at Epic Pictures at $200 a week. I'm not worth that much. Nobody's worth that much, but this is Hollywood. No, thank you. You're crazy. Crazy like a fox. You could be crazy like a mink coat. You realize the glamour you're passing up? Ciro's, Macombo, arc lights, previews, double features? What's so good about double features? You can't come in in the middle of both pictures. <laughs> Say, that's not bad. You know, you're kind of cute. I am? Uh-huh. Where did you get those big eyelashes? Oh, well, uh... I've got a fella down in Cuba who makes them up for me. <laughs> Look, let's face it, sister. You and I can make beautiful music together. And right now, I feel like Toscanini. No kidding. Yeah. How about a date tonight? I hardly know what to say. Unless it's no. Oh, Miss Van Aster! Studio wants to get some more publicity pictures. Move away from that tall jerk and hold the tray up a little higher. Okay, Charlie. Hey, what about my hamburger? Out of my way, buddy. That's Marie Van Nester. Marie Van Nester, the movie star? Holy smokes. That's right, Mr. Talent Scout. I'm just getting some experience for my new picture, Drive-In. And I'm getting some experience, too. 
Do you have a doghouse handy? No, but here's your hamburger. And um, as long as you and I are going to have a date tonight, do you mind if I join you? Uh, not at all. Hey, Joey! Another hamburger! Uh, I don't know how we're going to get along, Miss Van Ester. You see, my hamburger has an onion on it. I'll fix that. Hey, Joe! Hang a rose on it! A big one! Well, men, as Hitler said when he saw the blockbuster bomb come down at him, that could be a signal that time's about up. And so, on behalf of all of us who appeared on Command Performance tonight, many thanks to you for inviting us to your big show. This is Walter Pigeon speaking from the USA. And thinking of a certain group of men somewhere west of the Greenwich Meridian and south of the Midnight Sun. Men who have watched Fat Herman's boys come down out of the midnight sun and fixed it so they didn't go back up again. Those words came from one of your letters, you know. Our big universities have turned out many men of letters, but only men like you can turn out letters like that. Good night, fellows, and good luck to you. That's it, men. But keep pitching those letters in the command performance and care of this station. And all you star players will come up to bat for you again next weekend, every week. Phil, it's over, over there. This is Don Wilson saying so long from a very good friend of yours, Uncle Sam. Walter Pidgeon and a lot of Hollywood stars in command performance from August 11, 1942. Walter Pidgeon won an Oscar nomination for his role in the film Mrs. Miniver in 1942. It's probably best known today, though, as Dr. Morbius in Forbidden Planet from 1956. Next up is Bold Venture. Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall bought the schooner Santana from Dick Powell and his wife, June Allison. They were avid sailors, and so it fits that uh, Sailor Duval would be the name of Lauren Bacall's character in Bold Venture. And, of course, there's a strong nautical theme in the stories from Bold Venture. This one's called The Search for Tommy Reed. It comes to us from August 6th, 1951. Adventure, intrigue, mystery, romance, starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall. Together in the sultry setting of tropical Havana and the mysterious islands of the Caribbean. Bold Venture.
once again, the magic names of Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall bring you Bold Venture and a tale of mystery and intrigue. Slate, wake up. Come on, wake up. Uh, go away. I'm in the middle of a dream. Tell you'll meet her around the corner at half past eight. Come on, on your feet, mate. Sack time's over. Look, sailor. Never walk into a man's office while he's in the middle of his siesta. Get up. You've got a visitor in the lobby. Have him sign the register, give him his key, carry his bag to his room, then maybe he'll tip you. Why, sailor? It's a lady. Hmm? Young? Pretty? Beautiful? I didn't ask her. That's good. Now I can find out for myself. Hey, get me out of this mosquito netting, sailor. Why should I? You look better with a veil. Come on, the girl's practically in a swoon now. I want to watch what happens to her when she finally meets you. Yeah, me too. In a swoon, huh? Right in the lobby, huh? Mrs. Reed, this is Slate Shannon. Hardly worth waiting for, was it? Mrs.? Oh, pardon me. I've got some unfinished business at a siesta. No, no, please, Mr. Shannon. Stay. I can make it worth your while. I'm rich. That's why I'll pay you $1,000 to find my husband. Oh, please, Mr. Shannon. Find him for me. Talk to him. Convince him to come back. Look, honey, why do you need him? Guy will run away from his wife and leave her nothing but a mink rug. What good's a guy like that? It should happen to me. No, you don't understand. Tommy's sensitive, deep. And, well, he got involved in a murder here in Havana. Yeah, that's, that's pretty sensitive. He was absolved of it. Tommy couldn't kill. No, my husband's a wanderer. He doesn't like to be tied down. When did you see your husband last, Mrs. Reed? Four months ago. He came here to Havana to think things over. I sent him money every week. That's the way I like to hear a girl talk. But I stopped doing that. I thought if I sent him no more money that he'd come back to me. He hasn't. He got more lost instead. Oh, please, Mr. Shannon. You know Havana. You can find him. Any amount, anything you want. Where'd you send the money? Care of general delivery here in Havana. Uh-huh. I'll, uh, grab a fistful, put it in a big fat manila envelope, get a green one, something I can recognize, and send it like you always did. You're going to find a husband for her, huh, Slate? Yeah. A girl like Mrs. Reed. How do I look with a hole in my head, sailor? Better, Slate. Makes you look real breezy. Don't you hold your head like that, Bailey, when I'm sketching? Oh, that's it. Just like that. You've got an interesting face. Hey, Ross. What? You still think about it? I do. I never thought I'd grow up to kill a man. I remember in high school, I, I couldn't make up my mind what I wanted to be. A drifter who kills. Forget it. When Tommy Reed, that rich name's husband, stumbled into my joint Havana, all we were going to do was rolling. That's why you slipped a gun in my hands, huh? You're not so dumb, Bailey. I figured you'd figure that. For instance, switching identity with Tommy before the cops came. Then telling them the dead man was Ross Moore, me. 
You tried to hold up the joint, and look what happened, copper. Because I read the papers. Yeah. Because right near Little Orphan Annie was an item about how a guy named Tommy Reed had run away from a rich wife. Uh, how come no more money from home? Tommy's wife ain't cutting you off, is she? Maybe I'll type her another letter. Sign Tommy's name again. Because you're a big artist with the hands. Do it, kid. I don't like it here in San Vicente. I don't like this cafe I'm running I'd get money, kid. Or look over your shoulder before you turn your back on me. Give me another dime, Slade. What for? I've been playing the stamp machine. Haven't lost yet. Come on, the dime, while I'm still ahead. <laughs> you know, that's what I like about you, sailor, the way you run amok in a post office. What else is there for a girl to do in a post office? That's a question. All right. I got a special delivery for Slate Shannon. So kiss me. You just stand there and hold the pucker, sailor. A skinny little man just walked away from the general delivery window with a fat green manila envelope in his skinny little fist. You got a heavy load, Chico. Uh, the way you say it through your thin mouth, senor, it scares me. I'm as scared as a man. Ask anybody. You catch on quick, Chico. The envelope, hand it over. You're a plain close postman, senor? Give it to me. Because I do not want to make a scene. I am also a do not want to make a scene, man. Take it. He's heavy for me anyway. You're doing great, Chico. Now tell me, how come you pick up an envelope addressed to Tommy Reed? Because Tommy Reed pays me to do such things for him. I'm on his payroll, senor. You going to stop all that loveliness by checking me high? I'm in the mood to run your errands for you. That's all, Chico. Your mood will carry you maybe 70 miles, senor, to the Cafe Estrella in San Vicente. Have a nice trip. Thanks. That's where I find Tommy Reed? Oh, see, you love it in San Vicente, senor. People go around with thin mouths all day, like you. It's very scary. Thank you. For what? For not beating me to a pulp to rob me. Hate that pulpy feeling. Thank you. Goodbye. <laughs> I don't believe it. Sailor. Right in back of you, Shannon. I watched the whole thing. Thrilling, wasn't it? Come on, sailor. The mail goes through tonight. How do you like Sam Vincenti, sailor? Mm, these outdoor pet shops send me. Hey, look, there's another one. Come on. Oh, isn't that a beautiful parrot? Look at the way he's looking at you, Slate. He hates you. Hey, hey, get him off me, sailor. Here, Polly, here. Cut it out, bird. That's it. Ah, oh, Slate, I want to buy him. Tell the proprietor to stuff him. I'll pay for it. I'm going up the street, sailor, to the Estrella Cafe. Hi, mate. What's your pleasure? Tommy Reed. Is he around? Tommy Reed, huh? Gee, there's a name I haven't heard since... <laughs> In fact, I never heard of it. In case somebody introduces me to Tommy someday, uh, who shall I say ask? Slate Shannon. Gee, mine's Bailey. You say Tommy Reed, senor? Now, take a walk for yourself, Lupe, before I... Before what, senor? Nothing? One of these days, you're going to get too close with that knife, baby. Yeah. Let me pull it out of the table for you, Lupe. 
Here. Gracias. One day I kill this man in the throat. <laughs> yeah, that's an opening conversation if ever I heard one. Let's sit down. Ah, oh, what about Tommy Reed, Loopy? Don't talk to him. Away. Get away from here. Before I do the thing of the knife. <laughs> I am clever with men. No, Senor Slate Shannon? A regular genius. Now, why you want this, Tommy? I don't want him. His wife wants him. He will not go back to her. Where is he? Try on Avenue Robles, numero 64. All right. Adios, Loopy. Slate. Hey, Slate. Oh, I see you found yourself a bird, too. You always were a handy man with a salt shaker. Did you buy the parrot? Uh-uh. He nipped. She come for same man, too? <laughs> Sailor came along for the ride. She cannot have him. She cannot... Watch her, Slate. She's got a knife. She always does. Come on, put it down, Loopy. Put it down. I will rip her. I will show you... Just drop the knife. Ah. Just take it easy. Sailor doesn't want anything from you. Take her out of here. Go. Yeah. Before I... Yeah, I know. The throat. Well, let's go see a man about a wife, sailor. You came through all this... Bailey? Loopy? I almost didn't make it with Loopy. Uh, classic, isn't she? You came to my room through all this just to ask me to go back to my adoring wife, Janice of the safety deposit boxes? You going back to her, Tommy? The light's good in San Vincente. I've never done better sketches in my life. That Loopy's quite a sketch, too. Have you ever done one called Loopy without knife? I have. Either way, it's more exciting than Janice and the Jodper set. I've been sitting here studying you, Shannon. It's good here in San Vincente. Why don't you stick around? Don't tempt me, kid. You said the right thing, Slate. I could take up this knife dodge, too, if you ever try to walk away from me. No dice, huh, Tommy? No dice. Just tell Janice to keep the money coming. It'll keep a warm spot glowing in my heart for her. You just went and spoiled it, Tommy. Come on, Slate. Let's go break a woman's heart. Sometimes you're real good at that. Miss Reed! Hey, Mrs. Reed! Hey. Told me at your hotel you were out here on the beach. What did you find Tommy? Yeah, I found him. Is he all right? Sure, he's fine. We had a nice talk together. What did he say? Well, he said he didn't want to. Hey, wait a minute. Look, up there. What? There's a man up there. He's waving to us. Oh, I wonder why. Do you know him? Well, he's too far away. I can't make him out. Hello! What did Tommy tell you? Did he say. Watch anything? out. He's got a rifle. Duck. Oh! Oh! oh. You all right? Mrs. Reed. Now, you'll never know that Tommy won't come home.
Adventure. Our stars, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, and the second act of our story. Mr. Shannon, he journeyed to San Vicente in behalf of Lady Young and Pretty to find a man who is losing foot, cannot find a place to root. He said to Mr. Shannon, go tell my wife, without you, dearie, is very fine life. Mr. Shannon, he go to tell the word, but she shot from gun before she heard. Maybe she happier so, Mr. Slate. A woman who must love a man who drifts is a woman who must search the dark places for her heart. Cut it out, King. She's dead. Leave her alone. What's the matter with you, Slate? The man just made a comment, that's all. That's just what I need. Comments. Has anyone here got a good comment on who killed her? Calm down. Forget it, will you? Forget it, will you, she says. What's happened to all the bright answers, sailor? Don't you think it's important that a woman was shot down? Sure, I think it's important. But to whom, Slate? Your part of it's over. No, I guess it isn't. I ought to know better than to try to keep you out of this. You just won't quit, will you? He won't quit, Miss Sailor. Mr. Slade will... Shannon speaking. Inspector LaSalle on the reverse side, senor. What do you police want now? First, I ask you politely to appear to me at headquarters. Then, having heard you refuse, I warn you I will send six policemen after you. Each of same having large muscles. Adios, Senor Shannon. You look thoughtful, Senorita Duval. Whenever a girl gets shot for wanting her man back, it makes me stop and think. And you, Senor Shannon, the wrinkles are pensive on your brow. Por qué? Translation, come how? And whenever I get arrested, it brings out the pensive in me, occupational disease. On the table is the question of what you know of the murdered Mrs. Janice Reed. Well, let's see. She was pretty. She was lovely. She came to... Because she wanted her husband back, remember? Yeah. Husband who was involved in a murder here in Havana. I have been poring over the file of the murder. The man Thomas Reed was vindicated. You mind if I pour over your shoulder, LaSalle? What for, Slate? What do you want with the file? My file is your file, senor. A saying we have in the police. Because there is a growing shortage of rope to wear about the neck. Read a police file on an old murder and we find ourselves back in San Vincente. Why, Slate? You want to stuff another parrot? We found out a lot of things in that file. All we have to do now is prove them. Why not just give it to LaSalle? Things like this keep him in tacos and tortillas. A woman gets killed walking at my side. It makes an empty feeling. I want to get rid of it. Any objections? That's what I live for. For you to get rid of an empty feeling. (laughs) Well, well. Look who is here. The Goodwill Tourists. What's the matter, kids? You looking for another husband? You never have that trouble, do you, girl? Where's Bailey? He sleeps upstairs in his room. Spinning a swizzle stick <laughs> makes him too tired. Lupe fix something for you, Slate Shannon. 
Just Tommy Reed. Give me a fix on him. You come to insult me. You come to tell me he gone from me many hours. You tell me a thing I know. Slip the knife back into your garter, honey, and I'll tell you where he's gone. You, you know where Slade Shannon? Tell me. I go to him. I slice him. No, no, I, I don't know, but I know where I'd go. I'd go back to Havana to claim my wife's body, weep a fat tear, get her fat insurance money so I could live good. Get rid of Loopy. Hey, maybe that's what he did. You lie. You... The, the knife looks better where you had it, Loopy. Uh, believe me. Come on, sailor, let's disturb a man's rest. Understand what you have to do, sailor. Just go into Bailey's room. Get him to admit it. How do I do that? <laughs> Girl with your talent, sailor. Your eyes, your lips, the dashing way you wear a fellow's dungarees. You can't think of something? I'm scared, Slate. You think you'll notice my trembling legs? Yeah, that's what I'm counting on. Go on in, sailor. If you need me, just whisper. I'll hear it. Uh-uh. Don't knock. Just walk in like you were a dream come to roost. I could lay an egg. Why, Mr. Bailey, fancy meeting you here. I'll take it easy, Shannon. She'll be all right. It's the only way. How else could you... Huh? A loopy. I have thought about what you say to me, Slate Shannon. About the man you call Tommy. Come with me. I give you proof of this thing you must prove. I'll do it my own way, if you don't mind, Loopy. I do not mind. But this knife at your stomach, she mind. Ah, uh, sailor's going to miss me. <laughs> Knives. A man just has to grow fond of you, doesn't he, Loopy? I mix you something, honey? I said yes, you'd have to get up and walk away from me, Bailey. Oh, poor you. You're lying through your teeth, aren't you, hon? A lie with syrup on top. Let me taste. Yeah, come here, let me taste. Why, Jack, how you do carry on. Oh. Just relax. I want to talk to you. Talk? You flipped, honey? Listen to me. You don't have a big secret anymore. Slate Shannon knows all about you. About what happened in that cafe in Havana a while back. He knows the real Tommy Reed's been dead since then. What else does he know? He's seen your buddy's sketch. He's figured your buddy's been forging letters to Mrs. Reed. So now? Shannon checked the police files, and he's figured there's only one way this thing makes sense. Ross fooled the cops and Tommy's wife by switching identification at the time of the murder. So now? Tommy Reed's been dead all the while. And now Mrs. Reed's dead. You've got a good aim, Bailey. I've got aces and spades in. I got you. I can shoot my mouth off all night. Nothing happens to me because where I go, you go. Sure, I killed it. You know why? Slate. Slate, he admitted it. He... Slate, where are you? Expecting Shannon, huh? Oh, look at me. All at Twitter. Come back in, Mr. Val. You'll die in the doorway. <laughs> In here, Slate Shannon. 
Open the door. Well, maybe the folks at home are practicing a rumba. Shouldn't we knock? Whose place is it? Mine. Open. Inside. Andale. I've heard that when a host holds a knife in his guest's back, it just isn't hospitable. The knife is to sharpen your hearing. Oh, you're going to tell me something. Toto. All. Everything. You're going to save yourself the trouble, Loopy. I know Toto all everything. That Tommy Reed isn't Tommy Reed. That his name is Ross, all of it. Now you can take that knife out of my back. No, I cannot. I do not know whether to stick you or no. I have not made up the mind. Let him alone, Loopy. Ross. Oh, Ross, me alma. Where have you been? Where have you been? I hired a boat. I went fishing. Sea trout, Shannon, this big. You should have been there. Fun. Yeah, it would have been at that. I like you, Ross. But you killed a man four months ago. What's that between two guys like us? Let me kill him. <laughs> you got yourself quite a kid here, Ross. Yeah. Protects me like anything. Man gets so he looks forward to that. A man gets a lot of ways. You, for instance. I can understand how you might have killed another man, but... Mrs. Reed, why her? I didn't like that part of it either. My Ross hurts no woman. Bailey, Pig Bailey, he shot the senora. I envy you, Ross. You've got friends all around you. Even a guy who kills for you so you can inherit a fortune. Bailey likes to do things for me. And Loopy, too. Let me do it, Ross. Let me kill Shut him. Shut up. It's between Slate and me. You got yourself into a thing here, Slate. It poses a problem. If you walk out of here... Having a party, kids? Am I invited? I'm invited. What'd you do with Sailor? I tied her to an ironing board, and I tied the ironing board to a door. She'll keep. What do you want, Bailey? Why the gun? How come everybody in Cuba suddenly knows what happened to my cafe in Havana four months ago? They're talking about what you did to that woman on the beach, too, which washes us up, Bailey. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> washes what up? You're not brushing me. You're going to get all that money and half of it's mine. More if I want. Keep away from Ross. Keep away from him. <laughs> Pig, I told you. Pig, the knife teaches you. No hands on Ross. You, this gun. Ross. Ross. Hold me. Hold me. Dead slate. I'll carry you, Lupe. And put you down. Here. Sleep well, Lupe. I don't think she'll like knowing she died the same time as Bailey. Never say that many words after the dead, Shannon. Well? Well what? It's you or me. One of us have got to walk out of here. Yeah. You or me. <laughs> fight a good fight, but killing softens you up. It's all over.
What do you want? Stand there a minute. What for? Well, just stand there, that's all. Like this? <laughs> that's right. Don't laugh, Slate. Three hours on an ironing board will do that to you. Well, this is the first time I've ever seen you with a crease in your jeans. Golly, you're a funny fellow. Come here. You come here. It hurts when I walk. All right. You like that? Poor, defenseless girl. Yeah, well, next time, tell him to pour starch on you, Sally. You wrinkle too easy. And so our two stars, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall, have brought to a close our latest Bold Venture story. Special music was composed and conducted by David Rose. May we invite you to listen again next week at this time for another exciting adventure starring Humphrey Bogart and Lauren Bacall together in Bold Venture. Search for Tommy Reed, Bold Venture, from August 6th of 1951. Bold Venture being a series that Bogart and Bacall recorded over the course of about a year. And at the same time, we're going back and forth for the filming of The African Queen, a great Humphrey Bogart vehicle. Lauren Bacall was pretty busy, too, during that time, as she was pregnant for much of the recording of Bold Venture. Next, it's Destination Freedom. Destination Freedom was the work of Richard Durham, a distinguished African-American writer who wrote not just for this series, which he created, but also for the CBS Radio Workshop. And that may not be totally a coincidence when you consider a story from 1957 on the CBS Radio Workshop called The Heart of the Man. Tonight, it's The Heart of George Cotton, a story about medicine and racism. Our story comes from August 8th, 1948. Destination Freedom. The Chicago Defender and Station WMAQ bring you Destination Freedom, a new radio series dramatizing the great democratic traditions of the Negro people, interwoven in the pageant of history and a part of America's own Destination Freedom. Today, Destination Freedom tells the unique story of Dr. Ulysses Grant Daly and of Dr. Daniel Williams, among the first surgeons to perform successful sutures on the human heart. 
in a chapter entitled, The Heart of George Cotton. I am the human heart. spirit's rhythm. I am a hollow bag the size of your fist. I live in a cavity between two lungs. I am the timekeeper of human life. Fair, impartial, equal to Turk or Tartar, Roman, Greek, Ethiop, Hebrew. I am old, I circulated blood for Cro-Magnons, Neanderthals, Rhodesians. And if in men, I have been the lion and the lamb, the love and the hate. If in men, the good is off interred with their bones, so let it be with my blood. So let it be in my story of the men who mastered me, who learn the laws of my veins and lobes, arteries and oracles, who timed my twisting to planet precision, who fought to heal me whenever I was ripped and split, outstretched on a table in the breast of a dying man. Doctor, that's my heart beating like a drum in my ears. It's loud, so loud. Can't you hear it? He's Mr. Morgan, Dr. Daly, but I can't hear him. His heart must be beating, but my stethoscope hardly picks up a sound. Oh, Doctor, can't you hear it yet? Can't you? How long has he been here? The ambulance just brought him in. I called you right away. You checked his pulse, restoration temperature. Pulse rapid, ready. 130. Respiration, 30. Temperature, 105. Oh, good Lord. They'd only brought him in sooner. This... This wound goes down to... Uh, oh, wait. I think I found where. Doctor, I'm trying to tell you. It happened that night I got paid. I went out to sit on the beach to watch the sun rise. Some men came up, wanted my money. I hit one, then something hit my chest, dipped in like a pin. I, I... His heart's weakening. There's the needle. Adrenaline quick. Right here, doctor. Let it go, let it go. That'll hold it a while. His heart's been hit. Only one thing we can do. There's nothing you can do. Nothing. Don't let him stir, nurse. Call the emergency staff into the operating room. Find his blood type and get the plasma ready. His heart's split leaking badly. He'll die if he can't sew it up. We've got to operate. No. You can't operate on my heart. Not on my heart. One chance in a thousand. If we take it, he may live. No. I'll die. You 
don't fool me. I'll never see the sun rise again. I know it. You hear that, Doctor? I'm talking to you. I'm talking to you. Yes, I am the heart, and I speak to you, Doctor. You scrubbing your arms while red sand drips down an hourglass, dusting your hands with powder, flexing your fingers for the rubber glove. Your heart steady. Your mind 40 years away from a town in Texas when you were 18, when your fingers rolled over the keys of a big piano. I'm told you not to play that piano. My wife's dead. Let her music rest. Yes, Doc. I... I didn't expect you'd come in, sir. If it's still music you want to learn, we can stop your medical lessons. Oh, no. I, I've given up music. I was just practicing to... Put your my... fingers to a better use than waking up a dead woman. Uh, uh, I'm sorry. Excuse my gruffness. I had a hard day at the hospital, and I can't get her out of my head. <laughs> I'm tired. So I tired. I knew you'd be. I finished marking the class papers for you. Would you want to look them over? Yes, yes. What are they? Right here, sir. The final examinations from your surgery students. I've checked them over. Here, Doctor. Hmm. Yeah. Good, good. You've got a fine head on you, boy. Even if you are over-curious. <laughs> Excellent. Excellent. What would the white supremacists in this town say if they knew I've got a Negro boy not even allowed to enter the medical school marking my class papers. <laughs> and the boy named after that Yankee, Ulysses Grant, on top of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. This one's marked right. Uh, here's an odd one, Doctor. Yes? What's odd about it? Well, I, I didn't know how to mark it. This student thinks it's possible to sew up the human heart when the fibers are cut. He thinks you can take the needle and... Operate on the human heart? He's crazy. But he drew a diagram, sir. He thinks if the pericardial sac can be reached before it... Begins... I said he's crazy. It can't be done. If it could, wouldn't I have saved her? Didn't I try it after she stabbed herself? Didn't I try it? Yes, Doctor. You did. Huh? Not just me. But doctors everywhere. In Germany, Italy, France, Switzerland... All tried for years and failed. It can't be done. Don't you see that? I I see it, sir. But how shall I mark the paper? Zero, zero. Just talking of it makes me hear the way her heart beat that night. I wish to forget it. Daly, look. Yes? You've got nimble fingers and a good head. You know about all I can teach you here. You go north. Beat the race quota. Get into a medical school. 
daily. We can heal the kidney, the bladder, the stomach, now everything in the body except the human heart. Like the poet said, the heart's a lonely hunter, and when it's wounded, there's not a chance in a million to heal it. Not a chance in a million. ready, Dr. Daly. Dr. Shaw, Dr. Hasbrock, Dr. Roberts assisting. Good. Let them look this way. We cut a window in the chest wall above the heart. A half-circle incision this way. Every move counts. We can't afford a single slip. Nurse, scatter. Yes, doctor. Clamps. Here, doctor. A single slip, and I stop. To you, I speak. Knife. With your body bent over a table Please. under the glare of a white light, concentrated on a six-inch half-circle, your mind following the meaning of the words you spoke decades Clamp. back in a college hall when you took an ancient oath. Repeat after me. I, Ulysses Grant Daly. I... Ulysses Grant Daly. Swear by Apollo, physician, by Esculapius, by health, by panacea, and by all the gods and goddesses. Swear by Apollo, physician, by Esculapius, by health, by panacea, and all the gods and goddesses. Making them my witnesses that I will carry out this oath and this indenture making them my witnesses that I will carry out this oath and this indenture. To use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. To use treatment to help the sick according to my ability and judgment, but never with a view to injury and wrongdoing. In whatever house I enter... I shall enter to help the sick, and I shall abstain from all intentional wrongdoing and harm. In whatever house he took an oath I and enter, carried it out to the letter, to and so he went out to heal the heartbeats of the world, to look into hospitals across the country, and to knock on any door to enter the house of the sick. Who are you? What do you want? I'm Dr. Daly, ma'am. I'm over at the hospital. They told me your husband had an accident on the job. A shaft hit his chest. Did they tell you that there's no hope for him? Did they tell you none of the doctors could do anything? They sent me over. Go back where you come from. Let my husband die in peace. Please. Let me see. If there's a chance. There's no chance. Now go. Please, ma'am. Come in, then. Thank you. He's lying on the pallet. Over there. Thank you. Would you hold my bag? Let me get the stethoscope. There. They were right. His eyes. 
pupils dilate. It's no use, I said. There is use. Let me take him to the hospital. Let me try. If we get him there in time, we can work quick, very quickly. What can you do that the Savior can't do? I don't know, ma'am. All I know is that hundreds, thousands of men die this way. Well, there must be some way. Some way of patching up their hearts. I know. I'm a young doctor, very young. But there must be a way of helping the heart to beat, even when the cords are cut. I'll find that way, ma'am. I'll find that way. You went across the sea, learning my laws, in Paris, in Rome. Standing by under the white lights, while I lay stretched out upon a table, watching the masters try to heal me in Paris. Son peau devient plus en plus figure, Dr. Daly. Infirmière, avez-vous dressé la transfusion? Oui, docteur. Des crampons. Encore. Oui, docteur. Son cœur commence à s'évanouir. L'adrénaline, la guille, vite. C'est prêt. Son cœur devient plus faible. Trouvez une veine et passez-moi l'adrénaline tout de suite. Je vois maintenant, c'est fini. C'est fini, c'est trop tard. La palpitation cesse. Nous y étions très loin. Vous pouvez voir vous-même, docteur Daly, c'est impossible. Impossible. Confiteor Deo Omnipotenti, Beate Maria Semper Virgini, Beato Michaele Archangelo, Beato Ioanne Battiste, Sanctis Apostolis, Petro Oragata. Siamo quasi al cuore. Infermiera, gli incastri. Sì, dottore. Spero che possiamo giungere il cuore a tempo. È molto debole. La spugna adesso. Eccolo, dottore. Ci siamo. Ecco il cuore. Ora un arco, infermiera. Quello lungo. Sì, dottore. Bene. Vediamo se posso cucirlo in altri. Che cade insieme. Sì, dottore. Santo Apostolo Spesso Paolo. Omne Santos et Patras Orar, pro me ad dominum Deum nostrum. Doctore! Amen. Yes, in a cottage in Milan I stopped. Everywhere I stopped when I was wounded. And he went to Berlin to learn more, to work. While on a dark street in Chicago, other men went to work on me. I was in George Cotton... I was walking home with my wife. George. Yeah? Yeah, Mabel? Don't look now, but two men back there fine. Ah, you're just uneasy because it's dark along here. Every night we come by here, it's always the same old story. George, I don't look now, but two men... Are George, just... they're coming up here. They're running this way. Look. Hey, you two, hold up there. Uh, don't run. We'll throw a bullet in your back. Uh, Put up your hands. Uh, uh, what's this? Hey, you take your hands off me. George, don't he's got a knife. And I got my fist. Take you, smart guy. George, watch out. Watch out. George. George, he stabbed you. Help. Shut up, Lefty. Shut up. Shut up. Go on. What are you waiting for? He, he looks like he's dead. No, it's that shocking. I only stabbed him in the heart. You were too quick with that knife, I told you. Rifle his pockets and stop preaching. I can't hold this woman all night. Okay, Lefty, okay. 
Oh, of all the lousy luck. Ten bucks is all he had. You're lying. No, Lefty, honest. Across my heart. I'll cut out your heart. Come across. Honest, Lefty, you know me. I wouldn't lie to you. Shut up or shut up. Well, I'll be dogged. Two more dead presidents stuck in my hand. What do you know about that? I know you're a liar. But we got to get out of here. What do we do with the old lady? She knows what's good for us. She'll keep quiet. Take our old man to the morgue. There's a real good sawbones up at the hospital there, lady. Doc Dan Williams. He helped me Stop when you I... You fool and pick up your feet. Huh? Come on. Okay. Get going. Get going. Oh, George. George. You're not dead. Oh, George, no. I can still hear your heart. A little. Just a little. It's still beating. Oh, Lord, let it keep on till I can get into the hospital. Let it keep beating until I can get a doctor. Somewhere. Somewhere there must be a doctor who can help you. There must be one somewhere. Um der deutschen Herzgesellschaft zu willen, möchte ich meine amerikanischen Kollegen willkommen heißen. Meine Herren, Sie sind alle frei, Ihre Untersuchungen in Berlin und anderswo in Deutschland fortzusetzen. Meine Herren, ich danke Ihnen. Or, as you say in English, I welcome you doctors to Berlin to do your research on heart surgery. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Professor Gerhardt. Uh, you're chief of the heart specialists here, I understand. We'd like to hear of your work. Why, I I wanted to ask you. I heard that in America you have had successful heart operations. Successful? You hear that? <laughs> <laughs> sure, we've had plenty successful heart operations, Professor. Only the patients died. <laughs> oh, well, now I... Uh, professor, uh, Professor, I understand you German doctors are coming pretty close to finding a way to suture the heart. Is that right? Well, I was about to say it has been done. Well, I'd sure like to study under the man who's done that. Oh, I, I did not mean here. I, I meant in America. I read that in Chicago. Chicago. I forgot. Herr Doctors, there is an American doctor in the next room... He's on the staff of Eichelberger Clinic. I invented, I invited him over here to join us. Is that right? Uh, we'd be delighted to have him, Professor. Well, the more, the merrier. Maybe he'd like to join the society. Bring him in. Sure. Right, uh, him right in. away, Herr Doctor. Right away. He's just in the other room. Here. Just in yes, here. Here, here, Herr Doctor. This is Dr. Daly. Good evening, gentlemen. Oh, I didn't mean to interrupt. The professor said some of my fellow countrymen wanted me to join them. Yeah, yeah, Herr Doctor. Here, sit here by Dr. Martin. Just a minute, Professor. I, I think you've brought your friend to the wrong place. Wrong place? This society is for doctors. Well, he, he is a doctor. He's not a white doctor, Professor. The society accepts only white doctors. Well, is not a doctor a doctor? Can't you understand? Well, I... I never heard of such a thing. I'll, I'll explain it to you, Professor. He means, insofar as his society is concerned, what science proves about the equality of peoples just make-believe. He believes there's a master race, and he belongs to it. His field is for the few, not the many. He has a disease 
Harder to cure than a heart wound. I'll join you in class here, Professor, in the morning. This is outrageous. But I tell you, he is one of the best doctors in Berlin. I have noticed his words. Well, didn't you notice his color? Color? Yeah. Yeah, I did. He is the same color as the man I was going to tell you about in America, Dr. Daniel Williams. Uh, the news just come over the wire. Two weeks ago, July 10th, 1893, Dr. Williams completed one of the first successful operations on the human heart. The patient was George Cotton. And her doctors, the patient lived. Yes, daily, the patient lived. George Cotton got up and walked in two weeks. So, you want to work as my assistant. What can I teach you? You don't already know, but this. Maybe someday you'll have cases exactly like mine. This Cotton. They brought him in one night, stabbed by thugs. His heart struggling to beat. At first, it was so faint the stethoscope couldn't pick it up. I searched, and then I found it. I tell you, there may be sounds more beautiful than a human heartbeat, but I've never heard them. I took him into Providence Hospital, two in the morning. Uh, no time for a big staff, fancy equipment. I had to work fast. Then, with these hands, I took out his heart and stitched it six times. I did it for one patient, and I did it for another. And this I learned. Now, follow this closely. Yes, Dr. Williams. This heart. This human heart is not just a delicate thing, but it's also tough and strong. It'll stand just so much pressure when you're going to handle it. It's the little things that you do that'll make the difference between life and death. Now, you remember this when you're calling for your scalpels, sponges, sutures, clamps. Clamps. You cannot give the patient much anesthesia. He's too weak to stand it. You can have his eyes open, watching and waiting. Cut your window over the fourth rib Sponge. and tie off the vessels. Ready. When you lift the window, you'll see the heart. Clamp. Here. It's like a slippery fish. Clamp to. It rises, twists, and struggles like Clamp. it's trying to break free. Ready. Take the stitches in between the heartbeats. And if the stitches hold Ready. back the flow, you've Clamp. got a chance. Yes, sir. But remember, keep in rhythm with a heartbeat. Keep in rhythm. Never break that rhythm. Now, it's ready. We'll lift up the window. Steady. Easy now. Easy. Doctor, what are you taking off me? Doctor. There. It's off. The heart. Look at it. Rise and twist. Check on his respiration. Transfusion ready. It's on the rack, Doctor. I, I feel so... so weak, Doctor. So weak. Pressure. He, he's gasping. He's weak. Got to get on. Ready to lift the heart. Lift it out of the body. Not too much pressure. Keep in rhythm with the heartbeat. Doctor... Everything's going round and round. A little more. There. 
my left hand. Blood leaking out. Not much time. Nurse, needle, curved needle. Right here. Fine silk. It's threaded. Ready. All right. If the stitches hold, three stitches should stop the leak. One. It's gone down. His heart's hardly beating. Adrenaline, quick, adrenaline. I've got it, Doctor. Locate a vein in his arm, hurry. I'm I'm trying to, Doctor. But his nerves have collapsed. I can't find Take it. Take the scalpel, cut down. Make a cut down. Pick one. <laughs> I've got it, Doctor. Shoot it in. the human heart, a hollow bag the size of your fist. When I was wounded, these are some of the men who first healed my wounds. just heard Destination Freedom's dramatization of the story of Dr. Ulysses Grant Daly and Dr. Daniel Williams, among the first of the world surgeons to devise a successful method for heart sutures. Destination Freedom is written by Richard Durham and produced under the direction of Homer Heck. Dr. Bailey was played by Fred Pinkard. Others were Larry Alexander, Oscar Brown Jr., Donald Gallagher, Janice Kingslow, Kurt Kupfer, William Nix, Tony Parrish, Arthur Peterson, and Dorothy Van Zandt. Greg Pascal was a singer. The special music was written by Emil Soderstrom and was played by Elwin Owen and Bobby Christian. This is Charles Chan inviting you to be with us again next week for another in our series of The Negro in Democracy, Destination Freedom. This is WMAQ. A play that won a Peabody Award, The Heart of George Cotton, from Destination Freedom, of August 8, 1948. The creator and writer being Richard Durham. Next is The Whistler. You're listening to Skywave Audio Theater. It's not clear whether the title is one word or two. It could work either way. Bulletproof or bulletproof. 
Meet Howard Martin, played by Gerald Moore. He's made plans. And when wife Andrea, played by Mary Jane Croft, decides to divorce him, Howard comes up with his latest plan. This is Bulletproof from The Whistler of August 6, 1946. The Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. Whistle is your signal for the Signal Oil Program, The Whistler. I am the Whistler, and I know many things, for I walk by night. I know many strange tales hidden in the hearts of men and women who have stepped into the shadows. Yes, I know the nameless terrors of which they dare not speak. Yes, friends, it's time for the Whistler. And remember, let every traffic signal remind you, with new signal gasoline, you do go farther than ever. Look for the familiar big yellow and black circle sign that identifies those popular signal service stations throughout the West from Canada to Mexico. And now, the Whistler's strange story, Bulletproof. The country's largest news magazine wrote him up under crime, described him as massive, soft-spoken, methodical. Howard Martin was all of these and more. He was a man who believed in a planned existence. Whether it was business, matrimony, or murder, Howard Martin never took chances. He made his plans and carried them out to the letter. This philosophy brought him great financial success. And it brought him a wife who was young and beautiful to look at and who hated him with all her heart. That you, Andrea? Yes. How's your headache? What? Your headache. That's why you went to your room, isn't it? Oh, oh, yes. It's, uh... Better, thank you. Howard, I've come to a decision about... About... Us, my dear? Yes. I'm going away. Oh, now, really, Andrea, we've been all over that before. I'm getting a divorce, Howard. There's nothing you can do about it. You make it very difficult for me, Andrea. After I explained, I can't afford to lose you just now. <laughs> no, it wouldn't be good for business, would it? Exactly. Oh, that sounds very callous, I suppose. Well, I was in love when I married you, Andrea... In my own peculiar way, I tried hard. I imagine we both tried. But quite apart from that, my marriage to you was the best uh, uh, merger I ever closed. <laughs> when we met, I was a fly-by-night bond salesman. Now you own a corporation. Uh, no. No, we own a corporation. Oh, don't worry. You can have my share. Now, that's very generous of you, my dear. Typically feminine. But I'm afraid without you, there wouldn't be any share. What do you mean? One of your most endearing charms, Andrea, is the fact that you have a great many rich friends. Naturally, when you married me, they felt called upon to make some sort of gesture, hmm? To show that I was being accepted as one of them. So they entrusted their investments to the firm of Howard Martin, Incorporated. And very wisely, too. Now, what do you suppose would happen the moment the news got around that you were divorcing me? Well, I don't think it has anything to do with it. Well, don't be naive, Andrea. You think I'm going to lose everything I acquired by marrying you? <laughs> 
I'm afraid you didn't protect yourself very well, Howard. It would seem so, wouldn't it? I'm sorry. I'm leaving in the morning. If you sue for divorce, Andrea, you'll make a fool of yourself. You're bluffing, Howard. You've no grounds for contesting. You can't prove I a thing. I can prove enough to stop you cold. Hey, if you don't believe me, come here. What's that? Here, hold this up to your ear. Hello? Paul, dear. Andrea. I had to call you. I needed some courage. Where are you? At home. I'm going to tell him now. Oh, Paul, what if he refuses? There's nothing for him to refuse. But he's told me he'd contest. He can't. He doesn't know about us. And even if he did, there'd be no proof. Is that enough? Or would you like to hear more? You know, I have quite a collection. It was just a matter of tapping the dictaphone into the private telephone in your room. Every time you got one of your headaches and went upstairs, I threw a little switch down here. Now I have a record of all your headaches. So, that's your proof. It is. Any one of these dictaphone records is enough to throw your divorce suit out of court. Very clever of you, Howard. I had no idea you suspected. Well, what are you going to do? Well, we'll go on exactly as before, Andrea. Your life is your own, my dear. I make only one demand. That you'll remain in this house as my wife. And continue to entertain our friends. Or clients, whichever you prefer. For the greater glory of Howard Martine Incorporated. <laughs> and what if I refuse? I'm afraid you have no alternative. <laughs> Is there some joke, my dear? <laughs> oh, yes, Howard. And it's on you. I'll show you what alternative I have. When I get through with you, you'll beg for a divorce. That's a rather embarrassing prospect. I'll go to them, Howard. I'll go to every one of my rich friends, as you call them, tell the entire story. The truth, Howard. <laughs> How you married me for their money. How you recorded my phone conversations. Yes, I'll even tell them about Paul. Don't be a fool, Andrea. Would I? Remember, they're my friends, loyal to me. They gave you their business for my sake. You said that yourself. And when I tell them to take their business elsewhere, they'll do it, whether I'm married to you or not. That would mean exposing yourself. You wouldn't. Oh, wouldn't I? Let me see. Who's your biggest account? Martin Whitford, isn't it? Well, Marty and I grew up together. He'll do anything for me. What do you think will happen to your precious corporation when the others discover Whitford's pulled out? I could even phone him now. Wait, get away from that phone. Well? Let me think it over. I'll, uh, take those dictaphone records first, if you don't mind. They're, uh, in that box. Thank you. Well? Oh, you can have your divorce. Only give me a week to work things out. Look, you can afford to be generous now, Andrea. You've got to marry your Paul. You've won. Well, all right. But you've got to stay here as if nothing happened. Otherwise, the story will come out before I can do anything to prepare the ground. Very well. I'll stay. But no longer than a week. Thank you, Andrea. That'll be time enough. <laughs> With the prologue of Bulletproof, the Signal Oil Company brings you another strange story by The Whistler. It takes extra quality to go farther. Yes, it takes extra quality to go farther. And Signal Gasoline has the quality that has made it famous throughout the West, from Canada to Mexico, as the go-farther gasoline. But even more important to you than Signal's good mileage are the performance features in Signal Gasoline which make that mileage possible. 
You see, by rearranging the atoms in gasoline molecules, science gave new signal gasoline quicker starting, faster pickup, and quieter, higher anti-knock. And it's because of this, because it helps your motor perform more efficiently, that you now go farther than ever with new signal gasoline. Now, that's an important point to remember. It's the same qualities that give you extra driving pleasure that also give you extra mileage. That's why Signal says look to your speedometer for the best proof of gasoline quality. It takes extra quality to go farther. And Signal is the famous go-farther gasoline. And now, back to the Whistler. It was like a game of chess, wasn't it, Howard? You had your attack planned right down to the last detail, with a final checkmate only a few moves away. But as it often happens, you were so absorbed in the plan of attack that you completely overlooked the obvious simple counter-move that Andrea would be bound to make, that you would go to her friends and tell them the truth. All you could do was try to control the rage inside of you until she left the room. You sit alone in the library and try to think, Realizing, of course, that there's only one answer now. It's midnight when you decide you'll have to stop thinking about it for the time being. You have a week left and your brain will be clearer in the morning. There's an evening paper on the table next to the chair and you pick it up. Glance at the headlines on page one. An article in the right-hand column catches your eye. Suspect confesses in nightclub killing. Ernest Krug booked on suspicion yesterday. Finally broke down under intensive questioning at police headquarters. The case marked another triumph for Inspector William Conrad of the Homicide Department. <laughs> Who followed his usual routine in shooting cases by first concentrating the department's entire effort on the bullet found in the victim's body. <sighs> yeah, that's it. Good old Inspector Conrad, the ballistics boy. Well, you have a plan now, haven't you, Howard? The next morning, you're quite chatty with Andrea over the breakfast table. Of course. There's no point in holding grudges, is there? Particularly since the poor girl hasn't much of a future. You begin by dipping into your past, the shadowy past of a one-time confidence man named... Not Martin, but Marin, Joe Marin. That was your name in the old days when he used to play around in the fringe of the law, always ducking out just in time to let the other fella take the rap. As Joe Marin, you pay a visit to an old friend in his dingy little gun shop in the slums of the city. What'll you have? Hello, Sam. You went up on me, mister. Oh, you're not forgetting your old friends, are you? Uh, Marin. Joe Marin. That's better. It's been a long time, Sam. Almost eight years. From where I said it felt longer. Oh, that little stretch of yours hasn't seen done you any harm? No. I had the time of my life. Kept wishing you was with me. Oh, I got out from under Sam and you didn't quite. <laughs> After all, I didn't tell everything I knew, huh? If I did, you might have got the chair. That's why I want you to do me a favor. You're killing me. 
I could pay for it, Sam. Enough to buy back eight years? You always were a man for a grudge. But you're an expert gunsmith, and I need you. I want you to fix this forty-five so it'll shoot twenty-two caliber slugs. It's, uh, for a friend of mine. I'm learning something new every day. What's the idea? Uh, you're not supposed to know why, Sam. Only how. Well, looks like a waste of good gun metal to me. Let's see the rod. Can you do it? Yeah, I can do it. But I ain't gonna. No? Why not? I ain't exactly my own boss. I gotta be careful. Oh, yes. I know all about that. You know, that's why I'm so sure you're gonna do this for me. I, I don't get you. Well, being on parole kind of fences a guy in, doesn't it? What does it? Listen, ma'am, I don't know what you're talking about. I ain't done anything to violate my parole. That's not the way I heard it. Well, I'll try somewhere else. See you in a little... Wait a minute. Well? Shakedown, huh? What do you know, Marin? I don't know a thing, Sam, not a thing. When do you want this? Day after tomorrow. Pretty short order. It'll be worth your while. Okay, Mr. Big. Patience is your strong suit, Howard. Two days of waiting. Two days in which your seeming nervousness is interpreted by Andrea merely as concern about your precious corporation. Finally, you return to Sam's place and pick up your package. Andrea arrives late that evening and goes straight up to her room without a word to you. You wait alone in the library until you're sure the servants are asleep in their separate quarters. Then you walk quietly up to Andrea's room. Who's there? Don't be frightened, dear. It's only your husband. What do you want? Just a final plea, Andrea. Are you quite certain you want to go through with the divorce? Did you wake me up in the middle of the night to ask me that? No, it's only half The back. answer is yes, Howard. Now, please leave me alone. You won't reconsider? Good night, Howard. Well, I tried. I did everything in my power Howard, to... what are you doing? Howard! No! <laughs> What's the verdict, Doc? It was instantaneous, Inspector. About eight, ten hours ago. Uh-huh. Twenty-two through the left temple. I'll want that bullet, of course. I'll have it for you this afternoon. All right. Yeah, the room looks like it was hit by a cyclone. What do you suppose they were after? No, jewels, mostly. And they got them. Oh, by the way, we're not saying anything about the jewel rate of the papers. <laughs> well, Inspector, here's another one for you to crack in your ballistics laboratory. Yeah, <laughs> You know, Doc, they used to laugh at me at first. They called me a nut. Bullets on the brain, they said. But they're beginning to find out now that the big story in every shooting case is written in those little rifling marks on the bullet. Plainer even than fingerprints a lot of times. Uh, excuse me a minute, Doc. I just got the doctor's report, Mr. Martin. Oh, yes, Inspector? Your room is just down the hall from your wife's. It's uh, funny you didn't hear anything during the night. Well, I don't know. I, You know, I might have heard a shot, but I, 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 I can't think very clearly. Yes, now. certainly, I understand. I seem to remember some sort of nightmare. I, 
I, I thought it was a dream. You uh-huh. see, I, I didn't know anything had happened until the butler woke me this morning after... The... I see, I see. You know, it's funny, that twenty-two. It's a woman's weapon. Never heard of a second-story man packing anything less than a thirty-eight. Hmm. Oh, uh, Mr. Martin. Yes? This Army 45 of yours here in the trophy case, is this the only gun in the house? Oh, of course, Inspector. If you have any doubt, you may search the house, perhaps the servants. Uh-huh. That's 45, all right. Oh, you want to take it with you, Inspector? I can remove it from the case. No, no, it's not necessary. This job was done by 22. And I think you can forget the servants. This looks like an outside job, start to finish. Homicide, Conrad speaking. Oh, hello, Inspector. Howard Martin. Oh, yes, Mr. Martin. I'm sorry I haven't been much help to you during the past few days. Well, I understand. I just called to see how you were coming along. Well, I'm afraid we haven't much news for you yet. We'll really get a move on, though, once the killer dumps those jewels. And he'll have to do it sooner or later. I see. Well, thanks very much, Inspector. Call me if there's anything I can do, huh? I certainly will. Good night. Good night. So far, so good. Uh, Pardon me, sir. Yes, Edward, what is it? There's a gentleman in the library. Who is it? I don't know his name, sir. He was quite insistent. All right, Edward, thanks. Hello, Joe. What do you want? Relax, Joe. Pour yourself a drink. Hope you don't mind. I just helped myself. Ah, Pretty good bourbon. You're just going to stand there? Sit down. Go on. All right, Sam, what is it? I want to offer my condolences, first of all. Tough, ain't it? What happened to your wife, I mean? Yeah, quite a shock. You know, I said to myself, there's something to think about. All I got is a newspaper to go by, I understand. Page one. Society dame knocked off during robbery. Don't say what kind of a robbery. Only that the dame is knocked off with a twenty-two. Now, there's something to make a guy think, ain't it? Go on, I'm listening. Especially unusual here in this town where the homicide inspectors are not on ballistics. So right off, I figured out. Somebody saw the inspector a curve. That's when I think of old Joe Merrin. Threatening to frame me on a parole violation. If I don't play nice and fix his army 45, so she'll shoot like a 22. Merrin. Martin. Same guy. I put two and two together, the bell rings, and out comes a hundred grand. That's what it's going to cost you, Joe. A hundred grand. I haven't got a hundred grand. I'm a reasonable character. What have you got? I can't do it, Sam. I can't... You better start thinking, Joe. Uh, wait a minute. I I have got a hundred grand in jewelry. How hot is it? Oh, not hot at all. It belonged to my wife. Look, you can turn it into cash in ten minutes if you want to. Let's have a look, huh? Right. There's a way out of this one, too, isn't there, Howard? The paper said nothing about the stolen jewelry. And by the time Sam finds out, he'll be behind bars as the number one suspect. Meantime... 
you can find another gunsmith somewhere and have the incriminating 22 caliber barrel removed from the 45 Army Automatic in your trophy case. Then it won't matter how much Sam talks. He has a record. He was caught with the goods. No one will believe him in a million years. Yes, Howard, you found a way out. Well, what do you think, Sam? Diamond brooch? Pearls? It's hot. So help me, I'll kill you. Oh, don't worry. You won't have any trouble. You'll get more than your hundred grand. Thanks. Okay, that's it. I'll let you know how I come out, Joe. Yeah, you know where to get me. Yeah. Oh, one other thing. I'm taking your custom-built forty-five along with me. Just in case I need it to back up my store. Wait a minute, you double-crossing... Shut up, Joe. I'd hate to pull a trigger at a time like this. Good night, Joe. He's gone, and there's nothing you can do now, Howard. Once again, you became so wrapped up in your own plans, you forgot the obvious counter move. This time, the Army 45 and the trophy case, Sam's ace in the hole. You spend an anxious evening. It's late now, and you sit alone in the library trying to think. The house is quiet, with an occasional sound from the pantry where Edward the butler is polishing silver. And then... Who is it? Who's there? Take it easy, Joe. This thing might go off in my hand. Sam, what are you doing? Get up. Open the window. It's cold out here on the balcony. Yeah, okay. You dirty, double-crossing skunk. It wasn't hot, huh? Now, listen, Sam, You I... knew that jewelry was hot? You knew it was bait to catch your wife's murderer. <laughs> Pretty neat. Lucky I knew the fence. He took me off. You always was a rat, Joe. Strictly a rat. There's only one way to handle a rat. You got it all wrong, Sam. I'll try to talk your way out of it. I'm going to give it to you, Joe. Just what you deserve. Oh, uh, Edward, how did you get in here? Edward. Now, just what were you saying, Sam? Okay. Okay, it's an old one, Joe. I guess it's still good. Yeah. By the way... Where is Edward? That doesn't concern you. I'm going to kill you, Sam. Self-defense. Made to order. Yeah? Yeah. I don't think so, Joe. They were, uh... No, Joe. You see, the minute you pull the trigger, that little pea shooter, you put the rope around your neck. What do you mean? Don't be stupid, Joe. Just give me the rod like a nice boy. You ain't going to pull that trigger and hang yourself, are you? Because that's what you'd be doing, Joe. The minute Conrad found another twenty-two slug in my body, same as the one that killed your wife... It'll be all over, wouldn't it? You see, Joe? Get what I mean? Don't come any closer. You won't pull that trigger. You can't, Joe. One more step, Sam. I'm warning you. Besides, you haven't got it. I... You... You haven't got cuts. Haven't I, Sam? Whistler will return in just a moment with the strange ending of tonight's story. But right now, since most folks never see how or where the gasoline they use in their car is made, it occurred to me that you might be interested to look in on the organization that brings you the Whistler and those fine signal oil products. 
It all started not long after World War I, when a small group of young Westerners got together to form their own independent oil company, Signal Oil and Gas Company. In the face of what seemed overwhelming competition, these determined young men succeeded in bringing to Western motorists the first anti-knock gasoline at regular prices. Being independent themselves, they naturally sold Signal gasoline only through independent service stations, just a handful of them at that time. But motorists liked Signal products, liked them so well that the Signal organization grew and grew until today independent Signal dealers serve seven western states from Canada to Mexico. Now, obviously, there must be good reasons why so many motorists have switched to Signal. You can discover these reasons for yourself by just stopping at your own neighborhood Signal dealers. There you'll find the tops in gasoline and automotive lubricants, backed by Signal's 15-year tradition of quality. And you'll enjoy more thorough, more conscientious service because Signal dealers, being in business for themselves, have an incentive to serve you better. And now, back to the Whistler. He's dead now, isn't he? Quite dead. And shooting Sam down with the same gun you used to kill Andrea was just like writing a confession to Inspector Conrad. Yes, he'll find the twenty-two slug in Sam's body and it'll all be over. Unless... Unless you can get rid of the body first. Yes, it's your only chance. And then a short time later when Edward, your butler, comes into the room. Well, Edwards, quite a mess, huh? It was self-defense, sir. He threatened you with a gun. I saw it all from the hall. Yeah, self-defense. Uh, well, what are you going to do, Mr. Martin? Uh, give me a hand. I, I've got to get him out of oh, here. Oh, but, sir, you can't. The police... Give me a hand, will you? Mr. Martin, you shouldn't... Shut up and grab his feet. Uh, sir, if you'll only I let me... Shut up! Now, go yes, on, grab Mr. his feet. Martin, all right. Out that way. Go on, go on. Yes. Kick the door back. All right. Now, this way. Down the hall. We can take him down the back. Mr. Martin, I don't understand... Will you shut up? I'll hold him up so I can... What are you doing here? Maybe your butler can answer that one, Martin. I've been trying to tell you, sir. After I heard the crash of broken glass and, and saw this man come into the room with a gun, I, I called the police. What's this all about, Martin? Okay. Okay, Conrad, I guess you might just as well know the whole story. You'll know it anyway when you dig the slug out of his body. It'll be a twenty-two. A twenty-two? Your wife was killed with a gun. Yeah, yeah. Here, here's the gun. Wait a minute, this is a forty-five. I had it rigged to shoot a twenty-two. Sam, he's the guy on the... Well, he fixed it for me. Ah. Uh, so that's the way you worked it, huh? Maybe he came to see you tonight for a little dough to keep him quiet. And you shot him with the same gun you used to kill your wife, huh? Yeah. And it's too bad you couldn't have used another gun on him. Might have been a nice case of self-defense that way. Sure. But I knew when you found the twenty-two slug yeah, that I... Yeah, yeah. Now, let's see how your buddy fixed this gun. What's the matter? I think you're going to be in for a rather unhappy surprise, Martin. What do you mean? You shouldn't have been so quick to spill your story. Apparently, your friend Sam here realized it wasn't such a good idea to carry a rigged twenty-two job around. So he changed it back to a forty-five. What? That's right. 
The slug you pumped into this man wasn't a 22, Martin. It was a regular 45. Monday at 9 o'clock, The Whistler will bring you another strange tale. The Whistler is broadcast for your entertainment by the marketers of signal, gasoline, and motor oil and fine quality automotive accessories. And by your neighborhood signal dealer. Featured in tonight's program were Gerald Moore and Mary Jane Croft. This program produced by George W. Allen with tonight's story by Kenneth Harvey, music by Wilbur Hatch, is transmitted to our troops overseas by the Armed Forces Radio Service. That whistle is your signal for the signal oil program, The Whistler. This is Marvin Miller speaking, reminding you to look for those familiar yellow and black circle signs that identify those popular signal oil stations throughout the West from Canada to Mexico. This is CBS, the Columbia Broadcasting System. A straight drama from The Whistler, but a tongue-in-cheek joke there, an inside joke, with a detective named William Conrad, played by William Conrad. Bulletproof from The Whistler came to us from August 6th, 1946. We'll round it out with science fiction on Skywave Audio Theater from the work of Ray Bradbury, this first adaptation of a story called The World the Children Made, which first appeared in the Saturday Evening Post on September 23rd, 1950, was turned into radio pretty quickly by Dimension X. And it takes us into, well, what might be considered the forerunner of the holodeck, if you're familiar with Star Trek. But it has a dark side. In this broadcast of Dimension X, it's called The Velt, from August 9th, 1951. Adventures in time and space, told in future tense. National Broadcasting Company, in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of astounding science fiction, bring you Dimension X. The soundproofed, happy life home had cost $30,000 installed. It clothed and fed and rocked them to sleep and played and sang and was good to them. Their life purred on from day to day, measured and controlled by the nucleonic thermostats, the iridium sponge servo brains that made the beds and washed down the bathroom floors and made sure the salt cellars flowed freely without clogging. Twice a day, the house paused, rang a quiet bell, 
and turned precisely 90 degrees on its axis in order that the view from the Solaroid living room windows might be varied uh, to avoid ennui. Of course, the pride of the house was the nursery. The agent for the company had been most enthusiastic. This way, right down the hall. All right. What was that? Oh, it's all automatic. The nursery turns itself on when you come within ten feet of it. Soft automaticity. That's the motto of the company. All right, now, this is the nursery. Forty feet by forty feet and thirty feet high. Separate power units with automatic overload circuit breakers inspected and approved by the underwriter's laboratory. The nursery is educational, instructive, entertaining, and therapeutic. The entire control mechanism is adjusted to the electroencephalographic key of the child. How much does it cost? 30,000 FOB, Los Angeles. But that's as much as the whole house. Why, no. But we do want the best for our children, don't we? Oh, yes, we want the best for our children. And it was the best. The crystalline walls wavered from two to three dimensions. The pseudo-textured composition flooring shifted lightly from brick to dirt to waving grass. And the odor of phonics wafted the scent of fantasy through the hermetically conditioned and filtered air. The nursery was the very best. But then they wanted the very best for the children. The technicians installed the nursery, and the heavy coaxial power cable was run in from the main line. The walls sprang to life, and the mental control banks and relays hummed. All right, Peter and Wendy, this is your nursery. What's so special about a nursery, Dad? <laughs> Plenty. You just go in and see. Oh, do we have to? It's so big. You promised you'd play ball with me outside, Pop. Go on, kids. Try out the nursery. It's better than any old yard. Oh. Go on in, dear. You'll be surprised. Gee. Go ahead, Wendy. You can change them any way you like just by thinking about it. Go on in, dear. Well, all right, Mommy. Hey, Wendy, look what I can do with a picture. It, don't they? Well, why shouldn't they? All they have to do is think, and they've got whatever they want in three dimensions. Color, sound, and smell. Oh, think what it would have been like to have a nursery like that when you were a kid. Mm. It's nice that we can give them all the advantages. Why, sure. What else are we working for, huh? Right. Well, what do you want to do this evening? Well, the uh, Petersons asked us over for bridge, but... Uh... Oh, we don't have to worry about the kids. They'll be all right in the nursery. Come on, Lydia. We deserve a night out. And in the nursery, the walls were a kaleidoscope of time and space and imagination. 
The green forest of Sherwood and quiet forms of Robin and his merry men gave way to the roll of the high seas and the smell of salt in the air as Sir Henry Morgan sailed into the harbor at Jamaica. It's my turn now, Peter. You've got to be fair. It's my turn. Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz followed the yellow brick road round the nursery walls. Then Hansel and Gretel discovered the gingerbread house about three feet from the door. And from a high tower that stretched into the clouds, the little lame prince sailed out over his kingdom. And behind the crystalline quartz walls, the vacuum tubes and grids and banks of mental image tape spun quietly and efficiently, erasing the line between illusion and reality. Of course, the electric bill from Consolidated Utilities was tremendous, but it was worth it. The house went on. The stove hummed happily in the kitchen, making breakfast, dinner, and supper for four. Turning the eggs over lightly and producing popovers electronically calculated by capacity to a 30-volt current and specific gravity. The automatic laundry did the shirts with a medium starch in the collars, except the button-down Oxfords, which had no starch at all. The Happy Life home breathed contentedly as life proceeded with soft automaticity as guaranteed in the brochure and bill of sale. George. Hmm? George, I wish you'd look at the nursery. Well, what's, uh, what's wrong with this? Well, I don't know. Well, that might... Well, I just well, I... want you to look at it, that's all. Or call a psychologist to look at it. <laughs> what would a psychologist want for the nursery? Oh, now, George, you know very well what he'd want. I was in the nursery last week. It's perfectly all right. Well, it's different now. Huh? What do you mean, different? Well, I, I just want you to come and see. Are the kids there? No, Madge Allen took them to a show along with her kids. That's why I want you to look in now before they get back. All right. Uh, what you expect me to do, I don't know. I'm no mechanic. This isn't a question of a leaky faucet, George. All right, dear, I'm coming. The nursery light flicked on as they came down the hall. The relays clicked and the tubes warmed and chemical odor banks and pipes bubbled into life as they paused before the closed door. Go ahead, George. Open it. On all sides, in three dimensions, stretched the hot, tired landscape of an African veldt, reproduced to the last stick and pebble and bit of straw. The ceiling above them became a sky with a hot, yellow sun. A wind blew in from the baked veldtland. The hot straw smell of lion grass. The cool, green smell of the hidden water hole. The great, rusty smell of animals. The smell of dust like red paprika on the hot air. And now the sounds. The howl of the jackal in the distance. The thump of distant antelope feet on grassy sod. And the papery rustling of the great vultures that wheeled and circled under the yellow burning sun. Oh, let's get out of this sun. It's... A little too real. Oh, no, George. You promised you'd look around. Well, I... I don't see anything. Now, wait a minute. Look. There are the vultures. Filthy creatures. And there... There are the lions. Far over that way. Yes, I see them. They're on their way to the water hole. They've just eaten. Eaten? Yes, I can't see what. Sun's too strong. Well, shade your eyes. It... Some animal. A zebra or a... Baby giraffe, maybe. Can you see it? Are you sure? It's a little too late to be sure. 
Nothing over there but clean bones. Vultures dropping for what's left. George. Hmm? Did you hear that scream? What scream? Just now. Sorry, I know. Here come the lions. George, they're frightening. Take it easy, Lydia. They're just illusions. It was a miracle of mechanical efficiency. The lions prowling toward them over the tawny Ventland. A miracle of inventive genius. Every house should have one. The lions were 15 feet away. So real, so startlingly real, you could feel the prickling fur on your hand. Your mouth was stuffed with the dusty upholstery smell of their heated pelts. The yellow of them was in your eyes, like the yellow of an exquisite tapestry. The yellows of lions and summer grass. The sound of the matted lion lungs exhaling on the silent noontide. And the smell of meat from the panting, dripping mouths. George, I'm afraid. They're so real. They're only an illusion, Lydia. That's all. Watch out! Ah! Oh, quick! Outside! Oh, George, George. Lydia, Lydia, my poor, sweet Lydia. George, they almost got us. No, 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 no. Take it easy. Calm down. Yes, but I, I could feel their breath. No, no, no. Get, get a hold of yourself, Lydia. They aren't real. Walls, that's all it is. Crystalloid walls. But they look so real. Yes, yes, darling. Of course they do. But it's all dimensional color reactionary process and metal tape film behind glass screens. It's all odorophonics and sonics. Now, here. Here, take my handkerchief. I'm afraid, George. Did you see? Did you feel? It's too real. Now, now, Lydia... We've got to tell Wendy and Peter not to be any more in Africa. Yes, yes, of course, of course, dear. Do you promise? Sure, sure. And, and lock the nursery for a few days. Oh, now, wait a minute, dear. Let's keep our sense of proportion. George, I want you to lock that place up. Honey, you know how difficult Peter is about that. I punished him last week by locking the nursery for an afternoon, and he threw a tantrum, and Wendy, too. Honey, they live for the nursery. I tell you, it's got to be locked. That's all there is to it. Lydia, you need a rest. Oh, I... I don't know. I don't know. Maybe I don't have enough to do. I have too much time to think. All I do is set the menu selector dials at the beginning of the week. But, honey, that's the whole idea. The house is automatic. I know. But couldn't we turn it off for a couple of weeks? Just just a couple of weeks and take a vacation. You mean that you want to fry eggs for me? Yes, I do. And darn socks, too. I feel like I don't belong here. The house is wife and mother and maid. How can I compete with the African veldt? And you, George. Hmm? You don't know what to do with yourself in the house when you're home. You're drinking too much. Am I? You feel useless, too. Yes, I... I suppose I do. George. Hmm? Those lions can't get out of there, can they? Oh, of course not, dear. Now, don't think about it anymore. sat idly watching the dining room table produce warm dishes of food from its mechanical interior. You forgot the ketchup. That's better. It wouldn't hurt to lock the children out of the nursery for a while. It was clear that they'd been spending too much time in Africa. Oh, that son. He could still feel it on his neck like a hot paw. 
and the lions, the smell of blood. Remarkable how the nursery caught the telepathic emanations of the children's minds and created a life to fulfill their desires. The children thought zebras, and there were zebras. Sun, sun, death, and death. They were so young. But long before you knew what death was, you were wishing it on someone else. But this, the long, hot African belt, the awful death in the jaws of a lion, and repeated again and again and again. The children came home dutifully at 8.30. Hi, Mom. Hi, Pop. Hi, Peter. You want something to eat, Wendy? No, thanks. Well, we're just having dessert. We're full of strawberry ice cream. And hot dogs. We'll just sit and watch. Sure. Uh, Peter, uh, tell us about the nursery. Nursery? Yes, yeah, all about Africa and everything, hmm? I don't understand. <laughs> Your mother and I were just traveling through Africa with rod and reel. There is no Africa in the nursery. Oh, come now, Peter. We know better. I don't remember any Africa. Do you, Wen? Uh-uh. Run and see, huh? Uh, sure. Uh, yes, sir. Wendy, come back here. Wendy. Uh, she'll be right back, she, Pop. She doesn't have to. I've seen it. Now, come on. Sure, Pop. Wendy will tell us, though. Could they be lying? We'll see in just a moment. Peter, open the door. See, Daddy? It's not Africa. It's Florida. Like in the yearlings. There go the deer, see? It isn't Africa. Yes, I see it isn't. Go to bed. But it is nine o'clock. No, it isn't. You heard me. Go to bed. Okay. Night, Mom. Night, Pop. Good night. Good night, dears. I'll be right in. Good dear, wait a minute. Here, look. Look at this. What is it? This is the corner where the lions were, isn't it? What's that you picked up? It's an old wallet of mine. There's a smell of hot grass on it. The smell of a lion. It's wet with saliva. And it's been chewed. George, those smears are blood. Come on out. Now, let's go to bed. So they went to bed. But in the middle of the night, Lydia was still awake, and she knew her husband was awake. George? Hmm? How did your wallet get in the nursery? I don't know. Wendy must have changed the walls from the African belt. Honey, I'm going to keep it locked. Maybe it isn't good for the children. It's supposed to help them work off their neuroses in a harmless way. I'm starting to wonder. We've given the children everything they wanted. My father used to say children are like carpets. They should be stepped on occasionally. We've never lifted a hand. They're spoiled. And we're spoiled. I think I'll have Dr. McLean come tomorrow morning and have a look at Africa. Yes, only it isn't Africa now. It's Florida and the yearling. I have a feeling it'll be Africa again before then. George, Wendy and Peter are in their room. Oh. They've broken into the nursery. Those screams. They sounded familiar. 
Did they? Yes, awfully. Oh, George. Although their automatic somno beds tried very hard, the two adults couldn't be rocked to sleep for another hour. A smell of cats was in the night air. And in the morning, the stove cooked French toast, and the dining room table poured the syrup and melted butter. Pop! Yes? You aren't going to lock up the nursery for good, are you? That all depends. On what? On you and your sister? We feel that you should have some variety, dear. If you intersperse this Africa with a little Sweden or China... I thought we were free to play the way we like. Well, you are within reasonable bounds. Well, what's wrong with Africa, Daddy? Oh. Oh, so now you admit you've been thinking up Africa, hmm? I wouldn't want the nursery locked up ever. Well, as a matter of fact, we're thinking of turning the whole house off for about a month. Sort of uh, camping out. You mean I'd have to tie my own shoes instead of having my shoe tire do it? And brush my own teeth and comb my own hair and give myself a bath? Well, Wendy, it would be fun for a change, don't you think, dear? No, it'd be awful. I didn't like it when you took out the picture painting last month. Well, that's because I wanted you to learn to paint by yourself. I don't want to do anything but look and listen and smell. What else is there to do? Oh, all right. All right, go play in Africa. Are you going to shut off the house? We're considering it. I don't think you'd better consider it anymore, Pop. I won't have any threats from you, son. Okay, Pop. Come on, Wendy. Let's get back. After breakfast, Dr. David McLean was announced by the audio knocker. And the dining room table... Recognizing him as an old friend... Poured an extra cup of coffee, light with four lumps. I saw the nursery last year, George. It looked all right to me. You didn't notice anything unusual? No. The pattern showed the usual violence, a tendency towards slight paranoia. (laughs) All children feel persecuted by their parents. Perfectly normal. I locked the nursery and they broke into it last night. I let them stay so they could form the patterns for you to see. There it is. Hmm. Well, uh, suppose we take a look at it right now. They entered without knocking and sent the children out. The screams had faded, and the lions were feeding quietly under the trees. Wish I could see what they're eating. Do you suppose some high-powered binoculars? Hardly, no. How long has this been going on? A little over a month. It certainly doesn't feel good. I don't want feelings. I want fact. George. George, a psychologist, never saw a fact in his life. He knows about feelings. And this doesn't feel good. My advice to you is to have the whole room torn down and your children brought to me every day for the next year for treatment. Is it that bad? I'm afraid so. You know, that's why the nursery was developed originally. 
to let us examine the patterns left on the wall by a child's mind. But what is it? What's wrong with Peter and Wendy? Well, it's hard to say. I haven't punished them more than average, though I took away a few gadgets. Last week, I locked the nursery to show I meant business. George, you've let this room replace you and your wife and your children's affections. This room is their real father and mother. And now you come along and want to shut it. You can feel the hatred coming out of that sky. George, turn everything off. The nursery, the automatic kitchen, the whole confounded automatic house. Start now. But won't the shot be too much for the children? I don't want them going any deeper. Let's get out of here. I never liked these rooms. Get me nervous. Those lions look real, don't they? I don't suppose there's any way that... What? That they could become real? Certainly not. Some flaw in the machinery. Can't... No, no, no. I don't imagine the room would like being turned on. Nothing ever likes to die. Even a room. I wonder if it hates me for turning it on. Paranoia is thick today. Hello. Is this your scarf? It's stained. Brown. Say, that's blood. That's Lydia's. Come on, the main fuse box is out here. Go ahead. Pull the switch. jumped on the furniture, weeping. It's off and it stays off. The whole house dies as of now. The more I see of the mess we put ourselves in, the more it sickens me. We've been contemplating our electrical, mechanical navels for too long. We need air. Fresh, unfiltered, unconditioned air. He marched around the house, cutting switches and pulling fuses. The stove was disconnected with a roast lamb in the oven and a flapjack. In the, air. the heater, the shoe shiners, the shoelacers, the body scrubbers and swabbers and massagers. He pulled the plugs and shorted out the controls, one after the other. The house became full of electronic corpses. It was a mechanical cemetery, so silent. None of the humming, hidden energy of the machines waiting to function at the tap of a button. And by the still dining room table, its radionic insides dead and currentless, Peter wailed at the house. Don't let them do it! Don't let Pop kill everything! I hate you, Pop! I hate oh, you! Oh, Peter, please! In the house, don't get you anywhere. I wish you were dead! We were for a long while. But now we're going to start really living. One more, Daddy! Just one more! Oh, Wendy, honey! One minute of the nursery, that's all! Just one more minute! Oh, George! George, it can't hurt, really! Oh, all right, all right, only shut up. One minute, and that's the end. Forever. Gee, thanks, Pop, thanks. Then we're going on a vacation. Dr. McLean is coming in a half hour to help us out. Lydia, turn on the nursery. Now remember, kids, it'll be just for one minute. Oh, boy, come on, Wendy, come on. Oh, thanks, Daddy, thanks a lot. Just one minute, remember. Oh, where'd I put those suitcases? Lydia! Don't, don't shout, George. I'm right here. Oh, uh, did 
Did you leave them alone in the nursery? Well, I've got to get ready, George. Oh, that awful Africa. What can they see in it? Well, in an hour, we'll be on our way to Iowa. What prompted us to buy a nightmare like that? Pride, I guess. We had the money and we were foolish. I guess we'd better get them out of there before they get involved with those beasts again. quick. Wendy! Wendy, Peter, what's the matter? Hurry up. Open the nursery. Wendy! Peter! Well, they aren't anywhere. Wendy! Peter! Peter! The door. Open the door. They've locked it from the outside. Peter! Peter, open up! Peter! Now, don't get ridiculous, children. It's time to go. Wendy! Wendy, open the door, dear! Let us out! Peter, open the door! It's time to go! Open the door! George! George, the lion! Peter, do you hear me? Open this door! They're all around us! George! Son! Son, do you hear me? Dr. David McLean came a half hour later. He found the two children in the nursery sitting in the center of the open glade, eating a picnic lunch. Beyond them was the water hole in the yellow veldtland. Above was the hot sun. Dr. McLean saw at a distance the lions fighting and clawing, and then settling down to feed in silence under the shady trees. Hi, kids. Where are your mom and dad? Directly. Good. Good. We've got to get going. He squinted at the lions with his hands up to his eyes. Now they were done feeding. They moved to the water hole to drink. A shadow flickered as the vultures dropped down from the blazing sky to finish what the lions had left. Dr. McLean. Dr. McLean? Huh? Uh, what? Have a cup of tea? into the unknown world of the future. The world of... Dimension X. How soon we actually build a spaceship to conquer the stars depends upon many factors, not the least of which is a man, the overwhelming desire to create such a ship and the power to have it done. Next week, we tell the story of such a man as Dimension X brings you Nelson Bond's The Vital Factor... is presented transcribed each week by the National Broadcasting Company in cooperation with Street and Smith, publishers of the magazine Astounding Science Fiction. Today, Dimension X has presented The Velt, written for radio by Ernest Canoy from Ray Bradbury's The Illustrated Man. Included in the cast were Leslie Woods and Bill Quinn as the parents, Joan Laser and David Anderson as the children. Your host was Norman Rose. Music by Albert Berman. Dimension X is produced by William Welch and directed by Fred Way.
a story about the blurring of fantasy and reality and the danger of getting the two too blended. From Ray Bradbury, that was The Velt, Dimension X, from August 9th, 1951. Watch out for things going on in the nursery. And that story was used subsequently by X-1 about four years later. It's our finale for Skywave Audio Theater this time around. We'll have more next week. I'm Norman Gilliland. Thanks for joining me, and hope you'll be with me then.